boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lasses, and those that don't prescribe their gender. Welcome to the GOT Got Questions Podcast with Spencer and Lane. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Oh, they say hey back. Spencer, this is a very special episode of the GOT Got Questions Podcast because we are both recording remotely. Isn't that right? We're both recording remotely and we're both recording in North Carolina, yet somehow still not recording in the same room. It'll happen one day. We are recording the day after Thanksgiving. Spencer, how'd your Thanksgiving go? Uh, delightful. Variety of good company, variety of good food, and had a great, wonderful nap in a chosen place afterwards. Perfect way to spend the holiday. Yes, me too. I had a great one. We had some good food. Uh, we had some food that maybe I will make over New Year's when we're all together. It might come up on another of the Mango Talks podcast, Whiskey on the Weekends, which we are going to do live um, right after my uh, our friend Chris's wedding. That's mm-hmm. uh, the second weekend in December, and then we're also going to do a live one um, at the end of the month uh, near New Year's. Now, if you are n- new to the podcast, this is the Game of Thrones review podcast from the Mango Talks podcast channel. We go episode by episode. Uh, we do a recap. We select best line, and by we, I mean me. And then Spencer does a little book nerd bitching, complaints that a book nerd might have about the show. Um, this is a podcast from the Mango Talks podcast channel. Our other podcasts include... Mangum Reads, which is really a sort of uh, high-end book club uh, for fantasy and sci-fi that Spencer and our friend BJ does. We have Whiskey on the Weekends, which I just mentioned. Very fun podcast where we get together. We day drink, uh, mostly whiskey. Uh, We talk, we laugh, uh, we have a great time. And then we have Mangum Talks Hoops, which me and my uh, good buddy, my pal, best man at my wedding, Levi, run, uh, where we talk about all things basketball. A new episode of that just came up last week, so check that out if you're a basketball fan. But for now, Spencer, we got an episode to review. We do. We are up to the third episode now of season one, and it is still an utter pleasure to go back through this bit of nostalgia. I agree. See, you know, as we, you know, when we do these episodes, I mean, I've seen every Game of Thrones episodes multiple times, probably an embarrassing amount of times. But when you're forced to sit down and write detailed notes about it and really dig into uh, the script and how they put everything together and the cinematography. You get you gain a different appreciation for it, and I can tell you, season one might be my favorite season. Yeah, very much so. It's fascinating to me, as you said. We've gone through these episodes. We've watched them. We've talked about them. We've watched other people watch and talk about them to an excessive degree. And I'm still noticing new things. And it's so much fun to have this, you know, intense review mindset in terms of looking through them. There's stuff in the very first scene we're going to hear talk about that I just missed the first time around, and every other time since when I was watching it. So. As many times as we've gone through this, as many times as we've over-discussed, it's still a blast going t- to talk about it here with you right now. Completely agree. And that, that kind of draws a parallel for me with the books because, you know, I can read, you know, Sansa 3, you know, and, uh, you know, whatever book five times. And the sixth time, I'm like, oh, crap, like George did a little callback there. Like, mm-hmm. There's always something new. It's what people adore about them so much is that as much as they can be written off as just, you know, a casual fantasy work, they've got a depth and complexity to them that we're still not sure whether we'll ultimately pay off because there's still so many wheels within wheels and mysteries to be resolved. Agreed. And speaking of the books, um, we got new source material, Spencer. Uh, Fire and Blood was released this week. I'm very much excited about it, but I love the reaction from my mom, who I've turned into a big book reading fan, of where she just saw the New York Times report saying, you know, new Game of Thrones book released, and just called me immediately squeeing in delight, saying, is it out? Is it out? Is it the next one in the series? And I had to break her poor little heart to tell her that this (laughs) had nothing to do with the main series. Yeah, I mean, I get the fan reaction. Um, I don't know if you saw Martin was on uh, The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Mm Mm-hmm. 
um, and Colbert just was browbeating him. He's like, wait a second, this is 700 pages. <laughs> How did you write 700 pages before finishing the next book in the series? I think it's a totally fair criticism, obviously, but I'm still happy to get it. Fire and Blood, if you don't know, is a uh, history of the Targaryen kings, but it's not the full history. This is only volume one. This one goes from Aegon the Conqueror, Aegon the Dragon, through uh, the regency of Aegon the uh, Third. He's not written the second volume yet. He did promise on Colbert. Uh, I don't know if his fingers were crossed when he did it, uh, but he did promise that he would not start on the second volume until we have Winds of Winter. But he did say something interesting. Um, before we jump into the, the episode here, I, I'll give this to you, Spencer, get your reaction. He said, <clears throat> I'm finishing Winds of Winter next. Like He's like, that's period. I'm doing that next. After that, I don't know. Maybe I'll start on A Dream of Spring. Maybe more Dunkin' Egg. Maybe Volume 2 of Fire and Blood. Your take? My take? Uh, a, I don't believe him that he's not going to work on Fire and Blood before he uh, before he uh, finishes up uh, the next book of the main series. Uh, B, it indicates very clearly that as much as we may get the next book, possibly within a year, who knows? I've been saying that for about the last six years now, so we'll see if that proves true. It indicates that the wait for A Dream of Spring could be a very, very long wait. Yeah, and the man's 70 years old, so I don't think we're getting A Dream of Spring. I do think we'll get The Winds of Winter. I think we'll get it sooner it. than later. Probably in I'll the next couple. It. Probably in the next couple years. Okay, let's jump into the episode, Spencer. I don't know um, when you're watching this if you get the flashback scenes. I do. Yeah. Uh, did you like? Maybe I'm just making this up, but it seemed like for this episode they did a really long flashback sequence, considering there's only been two episodes of the show so far. It was impressive. I mean, I honestly realized it was going to be about six minutes of flashback and kind of cut through it about halfway through. But yeah, they were. I don't know if it was just them not fully trusting their audience to be fully paying attention or they were just hoping to be continually bringing in fresh fans during the first season and needing to bring them up to speed quickly. But yeah, it was a long, long intro recap. Yeah, I think they just really wanted to make sure that the fans were like, okay, locked in and getting some of the very basic elements of the plot. Because if you don't understand the relationships, understand where people are from and the political political implications of that... Um, you're going to get lost pretty quick. So I I think it was a good move on their part to have a pretty uh, long flashback sequence. Particularly for an episode like this of where they are going to be jumping around and covering a lot of characters in a lot of locations very quickly. So if if you don't already have a good frame of reference to understand where they're at and what they're doing, you're going to be lost quick. Yeah. Uh, Cut to the um, opening sequence. Uh, There's no cold, uh, cold intro here. Uh, King Bobby B over King's Landing, that's right. Uh, we haven't talked about this, Spencer, but we both really love uh, the opening credits, the the music, the sequence. Um, but can we talk about the very first thing you see, you know, after you see like the, the first... And, and then it cuts, there's a sword that has like an engraving on it. Hmm. You know, I, I, I've gotten so used to just kind of accepting that it was there. I've not been paying attention to the details of the intro in a long damn time. Oh, well, good. I'm glad I brought it up. So the very, like, first, like, when it starts the movement, you know, because the, the, the screen kind of starts moving and then it goes down into the map and it goes up. But before it goes to the map, there's a sword that goes across the screen. And on the sword, there is an engraving. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a, a pretty, fairly large dragon seemingly oh, in, sure, yeah. in battle with a stag and getting stabbed in the back by a lion. Gotcha. Uh, that is very much symbolic, then, of the uh, sacking of King's Landing during Robert's Rebellion, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, I just think it's a great detail. I just wanted to point it out. Um, I think a lot of folks, I think a lot of folks like you probably just didn't catch it, um, but I really appreciated it. So I just wanted uh, folks to know that detail was in there and look for it next time if you haven't seen it. 
Ah, the detail, the detail of these early seasons and these early intros. <laughs> Indeed. Okay, nothing else from the uh, opening credits, so we'll jump right into the recap. Um, we start in King's Landing, and the Stark men are riding through the front gates of King's Landing. Um, as they go through, I don't know if you've caught this. Uh, this is the first time I've caught it, and I've seen this episode God knows how many times. But if you look at Sansa and Arya, Sansa is looking around with a sense of wonder, and she's smiling. Mm-hmm. And Arya looks like she just smelled a fart. Like she's like <laughs> got nothing for these people. And the juxtaposition there is really funny when you catch it. An example of just big details that I've just so breezed over for years. I never noticed that there was a big ass Baratheon stag over the doorway. Oh yeah, I'd had yeah. <laughs> There's a massive friggin' deer's head that is just hanging out over that doorway that I apparently just brushed off for years. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to see in this scene. Um, so then they, the Stark men get to, uh, I guess, a, a place where they can get inside the gates and stop. And Ned gets off his horse and he's greeted uh, by some unknown kid who has way too much confidence. Uh-huh. Um, and he lets Ned know that um, Pycelle has already called uh, a meeting of the small council and they're waiting on him. He asks Ned if Ned wants to change into something else and Ned just glares at him, which was a really funny scene. But my question for you, Spencer, is Ned, when Ned gets there, they already have the small council assembled. Now, one, how logistically did they do that? And two, what's that about? I mean, the workings of government are the workings of government. The bureaucracy cannot be stopped. Pycelle apparently believes that the moment the, the hand is right back in the city, there are things that need to be done right away. It is interesting that, once again, everyone is very much well aware of where Ned or pretty much any of the Starks are at all times over the course of this episode. This is one of the first hints that everything about his movements has been pre-prepared in advance and they already have a response to it. Yep, that was kind of my thought, is that it's just another indication that Ned is being followed and watched at all times, that they could plan it such that they would, the small council would be gathered and ready for a meeting as soon as he steps foot in King's Landing. I don't necessarily chalk this up to government administrative bureaucracy. I think this is a power play um, by either Pycelle or members of the small council. Um, they they want to make sure that the first time they hold a meeting, Ned is unprepared and a bit disorganized um, so they can kind of set the tone for that relationship. That's just very my possible. guess. No, that's very possible. And it makes it then very interesting that it is apparently Pycelle that called the council if this uh, particular reporter is accurate in his description. Yeah, and remind me from the books, can Pycelle call a meeting to the small council? I thought only the Hand could do that. I don't honestly remember, and Pycelle's role in the council is very amorphous and changing over time. I mean, he's kind of in an advisory role as the you know senior grandmaster, um, but it, many times over the course of the series, when there is not otherwise clear leadership or a hand in place, Pycelle essentially takes over it. Um, when Cersei gets arrested by the Faith and he calls for Kevin to kind of step in, before Kevin shows up, Pycelle just takes charge. And even when Kevin gets there, he kind of rules in a co-regency with Pycelle. So, there, yeah, there's definitely evidence from the book that Pycelle is in many ways are willing to take active role over the council. And when he does, he typically does a pretty good job with it, too. Yeah. Uh, well, Ned walks into the throne room and <clears throat> he sees Jamie Lannister sitting at the foot of the Iron Throne. That's a very interesting visual there, Spencer. Just a bit, wouldn't you say? Uh, you know, <laughs> r- remind me, I forget these details, but the last time Ned showed up in King's Landing, didn't he find Jamie in a similar position related to the Iron Throne with, I don't know, was it a bloody sword in his hand? 
Yeah. So, uh, yeah, background on this, I'll, I'll give a little bit, Spencer, you fill in uh, the details I missed. But uh, when um, when the, Ned took King's Landing, uh, he comes into the throne room and he sees Jamie sitting there. And, um, well, this is after the sack of King's Landing, but Ned comes in and he sees Jamie sitting there. Jamie has either just killed or very recently killed the, the old king, King Ares, the Mad King. And Jamie is sitting on the Iron Throne. And I think that Ned, the implication in the book is that Ned thought that this might be a coup by the Lannisters, that Jamie wanted to take the throne. Uh, and so he, he very forcibly <laughs> suggests that Jamie get down off the throne, uh, which I thought was interesting. And what I think this scene is doing is drawing a parallel there, right? Oh, very much so. I mean, one of the things that Ned and Jamie will never see eye to eye on is that, well, one thing they do actually see eye to eye on, we learn this more later, is that they're both willing to do the harsh thing when necessary to do the ultimately right thing. The difference between them is, is that Ned would never do so with pageantry. He would never do so to be, you know, to be part of a visual or to be braggadocious. To see him walk into the throne room, the Mad King is dead, bleeding on the floor, and have Jamie sitting on the throne, confidently waiting for Ned to go up, bloody sword sitting across his lap, dripping onto the Iron Throne and his feet and running down the stairs, is a scene that he never fully forgave Jamie for. And so Jamie clearly knows Ned is coming. Jamie's waiting for him in this room. And so the fact that he's purposely setting it up to mirror the probably last time they really saw each other, and certainly the first time they ever met, or, well, that key moment of when they ran into each other, is just interesting. And the fact that Jamie immediately then also goes into hearkening back to those moments about, oh, yeah, this is where I, I was around here when I saw your brother and your father killed. Oh, right, this is also here where I saw the Mad King. Isn't that interesting? Um, it's just a fascinating bit of pokery on the part of Jamie where he really wants to just ground the relationship in this cyclical tieback to this key prior moment of uh, their background. And I, I'm not sure what that says about Jamie or what we're supposed to draw out of that, but it's an interesting point of comparison to the past. Now, do you, so you, you referenced Jamie sitting there as pageantry. I referenced it as Ned potentially thinking that the Lannisters were going to try to take the throne. Do you think I'm off base there? Cause I don't think that there's a lot of book evidence for that. It's just suggested. And that's how I've always kind of interpreted Ned rea Ned's reaction. I think it could well be part of Ned's reaction too. And I kind of tie that into the pageantry of where Jamie's in some ways looking for laurels as a result of what he did, either, you know, by taking the throne or either by ex taking the, you know, thanks and well and blessings of, of the conquerors now riding into the city for what he's done. Um, but yeah, I think it's definitely possible that that thought went through Ned's head. And I think it factors into how much he just trusts the Lannisters in terms of what they intend with the throne. Yeah. Also, they were a bit late to the game. Uh, and when they did, actually join they did so in a very dishonorable manner it was a uh, tywin who who rode into king's landing and Ares, who was mad thought that tywin who was his old uh hand of the king uh was there to help him uh and bring reinforcements so he let, yep. him in the, in, let him in the gate and the lannisters sat king's landing but anyway that's the the backstory you need to hear uh to understand that the sort of um dynamic here because if you don't you would think Ned's being a bit of a prick because Ned is not even trying to hold his contempt. I mean, he, he walks in and he's yeah, just disgusted with Jamie. But I'll tell you this, Jamie is in rare form, Spencer. He gets off some good lines here, starting with, think the gods you're here, Stark. About time we had some stern northern leadership. <laughs> Another one. What's the line? The king shits and the hand wipes. 
Oh, great one. Uh, Ned makes a comment that uh, Jamie's armor is pristine. And Jamie says, I know. Men have been swinging at me for years, but they always seem to miss. <laughs> Rare form. Confident Jamie is one of my favorite Jamies. I like Ned's response back there. Oh, you've chosen your opponents wisely then. <laughs> yep. Uh, but yeah, as we pointed out, Jamie brings up Brandon and Rickard Stark. That's the brother and father, uh, respectively, of uh, Ed Stark, uh, Edward Stark, mm-hmm. which we just kind of explained the background. Um, you know, Ares killed them both. And Jamie says that when he killed uh, Ares, it, quote, felt like justice, uh, which <laughs> Ned is having nothing of. Uh, he says, is that what you tell yourself at night? She was a servant of justice. She would avenge you my father when you shoved your sword into Ari Targaryen back. And good line by Jamie in response. Tell me, if I stabbed the Mad King in the belly instead of the back, would you admire me more? <laughs> Question for you. Is Ned being unreasonable here? It, it's interesting. I mean, Jamie clearly believes that he is. I almost think that Jamie's kind of looking for validation from Ned here. Mm-hmm. He's actually, is this Jamie, as best as Jamie can, trying to bond a bit over their own shared pain and trauma in the past? What do you yes. think? Yes, yes, I do. And that, and I think that Ned is being a little unreasonable. I think that his distrust of the Targaryens and his dislike of Jamie specifically is clouding this conversation in a way that really isn't Ned. I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> he did kill the Mad King and the Mad King did uh, commit heinous atrocities upon his family. Uh, I would think at a bare minimum, uh, Ned would think, well, you know, it's, <laughs> I guess what I'm, tr- I'm trying to get at here, Spencer, is I think it's a little bit hypocritical. I mean, no, no, it is. the Stark family, the Baratheon family, they were all swore fealty to the Targaryens. Of course, the, the Kingsguard has swore fealty to the, the king. They, the Targaryens and the Starks broke that fealty. They rebelled. But somehow it's not okay for Jaime to do the same thing. Well, here's a key thing here, though. Why does Ned think that Jamie did it? The key thing that Jamie never bothered to tell anyone was the actual reasons why he killed the Mad King. The assumption apparently pretty much everyone in Ned particular are making is that he did so because his father told him to. That he did so as part of the sack of King's Landing. He did so for his family's interests. If he knew specifically why Jamie did it to save King's Landing, to prevent the Mad King from burning them all, I'm curious whether it might alter Ned's view of the situation. I, I agree. Ned's being pretty unreasonable here. Ned is prejudging the crap out of Jamie and avoiding what could potentially be an important moment between the two of them, just practically speaking, as he's going forward his hand to the city, his hand to the king. Yeah. But uh, yeah. It, it, could, Go ahead. it could be informed, it, it could be driven in part by that he doesn't have the full story with respect to Jamie, and it's a bit on Jamie that he kind of, just out of pride, never told anybody what happened. I mean, he talks about that he looked at Ned's eyes and Ned judged him. And the moment Ned judged him, he shut up and didn't say another word about what happened. Yeah, so it's a little bit on Jamie, um, but it's a little bit on Ned. It is. I mean, why didn't anybody say, why did you choose that moment? Why why didn't Ned just say, when he walked into the throne room, you killed him? Why? Yeah, the fuck happened, man? Come on. Yeah, like we were going to... We were going to capture him. Like, well, what's going on here? Why'd you do this? And Jamie could have explained it. I do think that if Ned ever got that information, which he never gets, uh, so that's kind of a bummer, but I do think it would have changed his, his position about Jamie. I don't think he would have personally liked the man. I think they're oil and water in, in their actual, uh, you know, just personalities. But I do think that he would have had a lot more respect for him. 
very much so. And I think it was, the, again, the pageantry of Jamie's presentation of this crime, of how he was just sitting there on the throne waiting for Ned to show up, did not help Ned's initial impressions. very much colored what his opinion was going to be going forward of what happened. Yeah, and I think you can draw a parallel to how Brienne treats uh, Jamie uh, yeah. in later seasons, because Brienne has a very similar sort of moral compass as, as Ned. She's bound by oaths, honor, family, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has complete contempt for Jamie until she figures out why he did what he did, and she turns on a dime. I think Ned would have done something similar, maybe not as much of a heel turn, but I, th- I do think it would have changed how he talked to him. I don't think he'd have strolled up in the throne room just spoiling for a fight. Yeah, and I think it's Jamie kind of voicing the opinions of his father about what the lions think of the opinions of the sheep. There's so much pride still wrapped up in him at this stage that he doesn't feel like he needs to fully justify himself. He thinks people should just accept him as being the in the right about it without having to fully explain what occurred. And it's not until he can get knocked down a bit, until his pride can be taken out of him, that he can open up to Brienne about the nature of what occurred and about the pain and conflict he feels in himself. But right now, he is too much the gilded armor that he wears to just uh, let down those barriers. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I think we covered that, but I, I'm glad we spent some time on it because it's a it's a pretty important scene, especially if you've read the books. Oh, sure. Ned then walks into the small council meeting where he is greeted by Varys, Renly mm-hmm. Baratheon, uh, Littlefinger, Peter Baelish, and Grand Maester Pycelle. So, Spencer, let's walk the audience through who has what job. <sighs> okay, well... Uh, Hey, you want to start or you want me to go? Uh, I'll do one, you do one, I'll do one, you do one. We got it. Uh, okay, Varys, Master of Whispers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Grandmaster Pycelle, the Grandmaster of the Council. Littlefinger, Master of Coin. And Renly Baratheon, Master of Laws. It's interesting in the scene, I kind of forgot, Ned has actually met all of these people before and recognizes them on site. I actually kind of forgot that detail. Yeah, that was kind of neat. And and who is missing? This is not the full small Robert's full small council. Who is we're not ta- there? We're missing. I'll say two or three, depending on if you think Robert ever should actually attend his own council meeting. Yeah, let's do two. <laughs> <laughs> just, just leave out Robert. He's never gonna be yeah. there. Uh, option number one: Stannis, Master of Ships. Stannis. And by the way, I got the Stannis shirt on today for the taping. The the flaming uh, heart with the stag. Just, you know, <laughs> He's not even out. referenced in this episode. <laughs> he should be. Uh, uh, who else is missing? Uh, who else is missing? And this is, I think, a change book to show, is that book, very distinctly, Barristan sits on the council. That he is essentially the, I don't want to say master of war, but he plays a key role in terms of advising as to military and state security matters. Yeah. In the show, I think they make a point of saying in the later seasons that Barristan did not sit the council and Robert didn't want him there. Yeah, but you know what's interesting? Is that in later seasons... Um, they, Cersei wants to, to join the small council at various mm-hmm. moments. And I, I think it was when Kevin uh, was ruling on behalf of Tommen. And um, Jamie says, well, I'm Lord Commander of the Knights, or the, uh, I'm Lord Commander of the Kingsguard. I have a right to be on the small council. And he sits down and that's their in. It's true. To sit about the, that. Yeah. And then, then Kevin walks out. So, I don't know. They're they're kind of muddying the waters there because I agree. There's no implication that Barristan Selmy ever sat on the small council, but Jamie does later assert that if you're Lord Commander of the uh, the King's Guard, you do have a right to sit the small council. It may have been just Barristan in particular because Robert, at least on the show, didn't trust him, which I don't think accurately mirrors what they even show about their relationship on the show. Um, yeah, I, I just write it off as an inconsistency, maybe. 
Yeah. Uh, then Littlefinger uh, brings up Catelyn to Ned in uh, his quote duel. Wasn't much of a duel with Brandon. I love Ned's reaction here so much because Ned just basically says, "You're nuts to fight Brandon." <laughs> yeah, Ned never much distinctly sees himself as the lesser brother, so he thinks the idea of Littlefinger challenging Brandon is just the epitome of stupidity. Yeah, he—that's all he says. He's like, "Yeah." <laughs> Should have chose your opponents wisely. That was that was nuts, yeah. <laughs> you idiot. Uh, Pycelle then gives Ned the hand of the king pennant. Um, Ned asks if Robert is coming, and he seems shocked that he isn't. Although everyone else seemed to be prepared for that conversation, right? Oh, because yeah. he asks, and they all kind of look around to each other, and they're like, "He trusts us with small matters." <laughs> it's it's the details, really. You know, he focuses on the big picture. He yeah, ma- I... he makes Westeros great again. <laughs> Make Westeros great again. Yeah, you can't, there's no MAGA. You can't say it. It's too many consonants. No, it doesn't work. I tried. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Ned, Ned seemed shocked by that. One thing I'd like to point out in this entire scene, which I think is a really uh, interesting thing, and I think they wrote this well in the script, is that everyone in small council is calling King Bobby B the king, and Ned is calling him Robert. Did you notice that? I didn't. That's a good catch. Uh, shows again the different perspectives they have on him. Right. And I think it, when he's calling him Robert repeatedly, I, I, I get the sense that it's making the rest of the folks on the small council uncomfortable. Because he he's not Robert. You shouldn't be calling him Robert. He's right. the king. But Ned just knows him as Robert. He just instinctually calls him that. The yeah, number of times Ned has probably held that guy's hair while he threw up in a toilet. There was nothing kingly about that, nor can he see him in that light. Yeah, so I, I I caught that. I thought that was interesting. Then they start talking about the fact that Robert has requested that they have a tournament to celebrate Ned's new position. Not a shock that Robert would want to do that. He likes tourneys, feasts, he likes parties. Mm-hmm. Life of the party, King Bobby B. Respect. Then we get to the interesting details. Uh, the reward for the tourney. Now, Spencer, you have talked before in our coverage of Season 7. Yeah. Um, I, th- I believe it was the scene where um, Tyrion and Davos go to King's Landing. They pick up um, uh, what's the, the Robert's bastard? Um, Gendry. Gendry, yeah. Uh, and then they, they meet some uh, King's uh, Night's Watch. No, sorry, uh, City Watch folks. Yeah. yeah. So many watches. Uh, the City Watch folks, and they have a negotiation about payment to let them leave. So... Because you made that point, because you ranted in that episode, I rewound this three times to catch the amounts that are actually being paid out for this tourney. You have 40,000 gold dragons to the champion, 20,000 gold dragons to the runner-up, and 20,000 gold dragons to the best archer. Spencer, does that make sense? Uh, It makes sense in the sense that Robert does not apparently give a damn about state fiscal policy. Uh... These amounts are ridiculous to the extreme, and they're intended to be ridiculous to the extreme in that, eh, Robert just throws around money like it's worthless to him. Counting uh, coppers, he calls it. <laughs> These amounts are just, I, I looked up a few uh, place, um, points of uh, price comparison just so we can uh, compare, but from what things we know, somewhat back in the past, you could buy a quality suit of armor or sell a horse for less than four gold dragons. Uh, a fairly big wedding, wedding tournament we know about in the past, the second place reward was 30 gold dragons. When Jamie goes missing, they set a 1,000 gold dragon reward for him, and it's meant to be massive enough that anyone would go and take it. 
When Brian is taken prisoner, her father offers a substantial amount to ransom her back of 300 gold dragons. These amounts are just like, it's like saying, okay, whoever wins this baseball game will be awarded $500 billion. (laughs) It's just utterly ridiculous amounts. And it's notable that the small council is like, okay, uh, all right, we'll just have to loan more. They're just used to it at this point. Yeah, Ned does seem a little taken aback by the cost. Uh, Littlefinger explains that they'll pay for it by borrowing it from the Lannisters, which Ned A is not going to like. <laughs> He's not going to like three things. One, the excessive payments to the victors. He's not going to like that they have to borrow it, and he certainly isn't going to like that they're borrowing it from the Lannisters. Ned seems shocked. He he asks if the Crown... Littlefinger throws in that the Crown uh, already owes little, uh, the Lannisters $3 million. gold dragons. Ned says, tell me, you can't tell me the crown is $3 million in debt. And Littlefinger says, well, the crown is $6 million in debt. Uh, Ned says, how did you let this happen? And they, you know, they try to explain uh, in as soft of terms as possible that, you know, Robert just spends a lot of money. And, and Ned, I think, astutely brings up the fact that, like, how did John Aaron let this happen? And Pycelle points out, hey, look, John Aaron gave him good counsel. Robert didn't need it. And that's when Renly drops the line, which I love. I'll repeat all the time when it comes to Robert's fiscal policies. Policies. Counting coppers, he calls it. Yeah. Uh, the only, I, I looked it up. The only price pointing comparison I could make is that uh, Salvador's son, the pirate, who we're going to meet delightfully in later seasons, his entire fleet, one of the largest and most dangerous and feared pirate fleets in the entirety of the Narrow Sea, can his entire fleet can be hired at less than the winning price of this tournament. Good Lord. Yeah, Thousands so you could literally like, you could you could like amass an army and try to take lands <laughs> for the <laughs> price of winning this, this one day tournament. Good God! <laughs> yeah, that's ridiculous. Well, Ned, uh, not liking the fact that the crown is in debt, that this tournament is excessive, says uh, he's going to speak to Robert about it tomorrow. Littlefinger suggests that they plan for it anyway, and Ned snaps. There will be no plans until I speak with Robert. Ned then looks around. He apologizes for snapping. And he says he had a long ride. Mm. And everyone just accepts that and moves on. Um, yeah. I think they're all kind of like, kind of like humoring him. Like, okay, yeah. I'm going to talk to him. Because they know it's not going to change. Not a bit. Um, where do we cut to from here? I think, is it, is it Joffrey and Cersei that are happening next? Yep. Yeah, Cersei's with Joffrey. Uh, she's tending his wounds and he's he doesn't like it. He thinks it's ugly. And Cersei says, well, a king should have scars. Um, and, and then... You know, he, Joffrey's like, basically, I mean, he's with his mother who he trusts. And he's like, look, you know, they, I, I was not any sort of heroic in this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wolf attacked, you know, I, would, I attacked the girl. The wolf attacked me. They, they pulled the wolf off. Like, I didn't do anything. And Cersei just starts changing the narrative. Like, a little bit of Westerosi <laughs> fake news here. Um, Cersei explains that when you're king, the truth is what you make it. We can just see very much how Joffrey got to be the way that he is to see that the main lessons that Cersei is teaching her son is protagonist-centered morality. That the only thing that matters is you and your view of the world. Everybody else will get in line or you will kill them. And you can do what you want. If you want to fuck painted whores, you can fuck painted whores. If you'd rather fuck noble virgins, you can fuck noble virgins. You are a baby boy and the world will be as you make it. I don't know about your relationship with your mom, but I never had that discussion with my parents. 
No, I did. That's so weird that she's talking to Joffrey, who's probably 13, 14 years old and talking about, well, you know, let's let's you're, you're going to have a full slate of menu of sexual options available to you. Like what? It, it's particularly fascinating that she despises the fact that Robert's been doing this, but she's setting her son up to do the exact same thing. Ooh, good point. I hadn't thought of it like that. It just should. I, I, I don't know if it's just again that it's okay so long as it's a Lannister and my son doing it, or if it's just how twisted the you know feudal patriarchal uh, balance of uh, sexes in this world is. That oh well, I hate it, but you know that's just what men do. That's just what kings do. Go have fun. Ah, I it, whatever whatever it is, it just shows throughout this scene that Cersei's relationship with her son is toxic, and when Kevin throws that in her face later. Good God, was he calling it correctly? Yeah, then Joffrey uh, goes in on the North. He says they give the North too much power. So Cersei says, well, what would you do? Joffrey here in his job interview to be king, um, I think fails miserably. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he pitches an idea of a standing royal army mm -hmm. um, and who are loyal to the crown and not their individual kingdoms. Spencer, what do you think about the idea of a standing royal army in Westeros at this point in time? Okay, as a long-term plan of trying to reformat the kingdom to be a more centrally focused bureaucracy with a more central command? Maybe. Might take a few generations to happen. As for right now, Cersei rightly rubs it in his face that, oh yeah, send your northern recruited army north to try to put down a rebellion and see how that plays out. This is a feudal society, you ignorant little bitch. Yeah, she she does. Ca <laughs> I wrote Cersei casually pushes back on the idea, but you had an interesting interpretation of what she said. Uh, but yeah, she's trying to explain to him that just commanding people to be in an army is not going to work, and then trying to hold the North against the will of the Northerners is never probably yes, going to work. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I mean, I think that uh, to your point, I think that Joffrey is pitching the idea of like federalism, right? Let's let's centralize yeah. power in the federal government. Um, but it is not reasonable at this point in time, especially with winter coming, to think you can do it. So Cersei pushes back on it. I think this scene is meant to show us that Cersei does have some knowledge of politics. She's been paying attention. She's the, the daughter of Tywin Lannister. She is the wife of Robert Baratheon. And she is trying to impart what she knows on Joffrey. It's just not going particularly well. No, Joffrey has some pretty impressive ambitions about how he wants to be a king and how he wants to rework the world, but he has just no practical perspective on the details. I guess in some ways he shares his father's view about counting coppers and prep, what actually needs to occur to make your dreams come to reality. Yeah. Anything oh, more on this thing? Fathers. I was doing quotation marks when I said that. Woo! Anything uh, more on this thing? Oh, I think Cersei wraps it up at the end of where, you know, Joffrey kind of looks at her and says, so you agree with me, the Starks are the enemy. And she just summarizes her and her brother's view of this particular subject. Everyone who isn't us is an enemy. Yeah, and there's a later um, scene with Cersei and Jaime that gets at this point, too, which Very we'll get at. So. Still in King's Landing, we cut to Arya and Sansa and their caretaker. Who is this lady's name? Uh, Septa, is it Mordana? I got, I, I, one thing I didn't write down, you called me out on. Let me see. All right, you want to Google it while I go into a recap? Yeah, go on in. Okay. Uh, so the three of them are sitting there, and <laughs> young Arya continues to crack me up every episode of season one. She seems to be taking her knife and just stabbing the table repeatedly. <laughs> oh, 
over and over and over again. At first, I thought she was playing that game, you know, where you put your hand out and you just stab <laughs> she's between knifey the fingers. fingers. But she's not. I, I looked at it again. She's totally not doing that. She's just sitting there stabbing the table over and over again, angrily. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the Septon... Septon Mordain. I'd looked it up. I was close. Sept, good. Septon Mordain uh, tells her to basically stop it. Very reasonable request when somebody is just wildly stabbing a table. Yeah. And Arya goes in on Sansa... Uh, complaining about Sansa's behavior with the whole incident um, with uh, Micken, right? The, mm-hmm. the butcher's boy. Uh, Micah, Micah. Micah and the, and the butcher's boy. Uh, who is the butcher's boy and, and, and Joffrey and how that all went down and how Sansa didn't exactly come to Arya and Micah's aid when being dragged in front of the king. We can argue about if to, that's to put it reasonable or not, but it clearly pissed Arya off. Uh, Ned comes oh, yeah. in. And uh, he says, what's going on here? And uh, Septon uh, Mordain uh, says, well, you know, basically, sorry, Arya's being wild. And Ned just says, it's fine. Just send her to her room. I'll go talk to her later. Which I'll get to the dynamic between Sansa, Ned, and Arya. I have an interesting theory on this that I want to run by you, but I want to finish up this scene. Uh, Ned sits down. He gives a gift to Sansa. And this is peak Sansa awfulness here. You are a Sansa apologist. Not this here. Is, this is ridiculous. He he got her this doll, and she just looks at it with contempt and says, I haven't played with dolls since I was eight. And, and, and you, just see, you see Ned dying a little bit inside when she says this, because he tried. He tried so hard. He got her the finest doll he possibly could, and she just casually throws it back at him. It's like, what do you want from me? Like, you want to marry Joffrey? I've arranged for that. I got you a gift. No, it's not the gift that you wanted, but you could at least say thank you. She doesn't even say thank you. She's just mad that he even gave it to her. Sansa's being terrible here. Um, Sansa says she's not hungry. Ned excuses her. And then Ned turns to Septon Mordain and says, Great line. War is easier than daughters. Great line. Great line. <laughs> uh, two, two things I will note. I'm not going to defend Sansa here because good God is she being unpleasant. This is, this is a real bad moment in their relationship and a real coloring moment of how we view Sansa in season one. However, if she's telling the truth, it does indicate that Ned is not as close with Sansa as he is with the rest of his children. If she really hasn't played with dolls since she was eight, she's 12 now. That is a bit of a long gap to not really be in enough with your kid to know what they're actually where they are in their stage of life. Ooh, you're getting to my theory. You're, you're encroaching a little bit. You're getting okay. up to the wall. I'll, one last detail. I will, actually, let's let's go through your theory, and I'm going to note one last detail once we're done with it afterwards. Um, you go ahead, okay. uh, because I uh, want to I want to explain my theory after this. Uh, Ned visits Arya. Okay. Something that we'll point out later, but I just want to bring it up now. As much as she just make fun, she throws this back in Ned's face and kind of crushes him a little bit that she did not like his gift at all. She does keep it, and we notably see it again in the Battle of Blackwater. Uh, so whatever else she said in this moment, she does keep it, and if nothing else, uses it to remember her dad by later. It's a really Whoa! Shout what? out, Spencer! Put a point on the board! I did not notice that. It, it, uh, we will watch the Battle of Blackwater. We pretty much watch the Battle of Blackwater together whenever we see each other, so we'll probably watch it in a month anyway. Um, but it is a very notable little scene of when she's gone back to her room and she's been sent there to get away from everything else. The first thing she goes to when she goes to her room is to pick up the doll and kind of cradle it. Oh man, big point on the board for Spencer. That's a that's a great detail that I've not noticed. And it does Your really change. Sir. It does really change how you view this interaction. It, it, as much as she was just pissed off in this moment, she does keep it, 
and it is very much a lodestone for her how much she cares about her dad. Um, so she's still being incredibly, incredibly 12-year-old-ish right now, but it, 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 it at least meant something to her that he gave it to her later. Right. Okay, moving on. Ned does visit Arya. She's just got a needle in her hand, just bare steel, like I said, Ned walks she in. She just opens the door with it. <laughs> this season one Arya, man, she is all right. kinds of funny. Ned just looks at her and he goes, what's that? Give it to me. Uh, and he immediately notices that it was forged in Winterfell. Uh, do you think he has any guesses as to who gave it to her? Because Arya notably does not snitch. She says no word about how she got it. Yeah, I think he's got guesses. I mean, it's it's Ned. He knows his kids, and he knows the Winterfell. He immediately, he immediately knows who made the sword. Uh, I think he looks at the little maker's mark on it. So I think he's got a reasonable guess. What I love is that um, how casual he is about the fact that he walks in with his daughter with a sword bared. I mean, if you walked in and your kid's kind of waving a gun around, would you have more you know, a, a bit more of an emotional response than Ned does right now? Maybe, but I think, and this is getting, again, encroaching on my theory, he knows Arya really well. Yeah, he does. Uh, but let's get to the rest of the scene. Ned talks with Arya. Arya explains that she asked Mikan, uh, Mika, Micah? Micah. I can't, Micah. I wrote down Mikan. I can't get it out of my head. Uh, Micah. She asked Micah to, to sword play with her and help mm-hmm. her train. And she feels responsible for his death. Very and much so. Ari, uh, then Ned goes, no, sweet girl, no, no, you didn't kill the butcher's boy. And he tries to explain to her, you know, you, you didn't do this. And he also comes to Sansa's defense a little bit. And he explains that, you know, he takes up for Sansa. He says, look, she's going to marry Joffrey. She can't just outright undermine him in front of his mother and his father. She has to take his side. Mm-hmm. Arya then, with the roundhouse punch, yeah. says... But how can you let her marry someone like that? Ned has no answer. No. But he, but he does say that she needs to make nice with uh, Sansa. He says, we've come to a dangerous place. We can't fight a war amongst ourselves. Now, when else have we heard that line? Mm, you got me on this one. Remind me. We can't fight a war amongst ourselves. John with Sansa. Oh, you got it. Good call. That's a that's a good catch. We're back now, now, stretching back to season, season seven now. I think it might even be season six. This is when they first got together, mm. um, and and they were arguing, complaining about you know the the battle of the bastards or the need to go there or whatever. Could be wrong about that, but I know that uh, that John did say it. So I like that callback. There's so many callbacks from season six and especially season seven to season one. I love it every time we catch one. And it's notable that Ari immediately knows what advice he's giving. This is very much a lesson that he's taught his children well. So it makes perfect sense that his children would be repeating this many years later in terms of a guiding wisdom. Oh, yeah. Also a very sweet moment from Arya where she looks up and she goes, I don't hate her. Oh, Not yeah. really. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an, an impressive concession on Arya's part because she's not going to hide the fact she hates somebody. Yeah. Uh, here's my theory. My theory is that, in the, some of the theory is obvious, but I, I take it to a, a, a new place. So I think that, that Ned definitely sees um, a lot of Lyanna in Arya. Oh, yeah. Oh, and that yeah. endears him to Arya. I also think he's more equipped to talk to a Arya-Lyanna personality mm-hmm. than a Sansa personality. And so I think that he was much, he, not by design, he, didn't, he wasn't trying to do this, but he was just much closer with Arya. Think about how when Sansa gets upset, Sansa just leaves. When Arya's upset, he says, I'll talk to you later. And he's able to go in and talk to her and calm her down and reason with her. 
Very much in a so. way that I don't think at this point he's he's able to do with Sansa. And I think that this has probably been going on for years. And when Ned dies, and then Arya and Sansa are reconnected in season seven, and Sansa's doing this whole song and dance about missing dad and how much you know how close how much she loved him and this and that. I think there was a part of Arya going, "Well, you two weren't particularly close. I mean, you're kind of a dick to him, you know." Yeah. So I, I think that may have colored a little bit of the relationship in season seven when Sansa's doing this whole nostalgic song and dance about her relationship with Ned when. That what we've seen is that yes, she does love Ned, but I don't think they were that close, right? They weren't interacting uh, very, like you know, intimately as far as a relationship perspective on a day-to-day basis. Spencer, your take? No, I very much agree. I think Ned is very much loves the children, very much cares for his children, but in terms of his closeness to them, Sansa is very much the odd one out, and so. And that's just being emphasized more throughout the season. With you know, her wolf's been killed. She's marrying out of the family. There's a lot of forces that are kind of isolating Sansa from the rest of the family. Sansa very much takes after her mother's side of the family. She very much takes after the Tellys. She's very much a southern lady. And so in terms of Ned, northerners to the core's ability to interact with her, as you said, Arya much more fits into his mindset, very much fits into his history, and very much reminds him of his beloved sister, Lyanna. She both acts like her, she has the spirit of her, and as she gets older, she very much looks like her, too. So I, I very much agree with your interpretation that Ned, throughout these scenes and throughout his background, seems very, very much closer with Arya than he is with Sansa. And I think this pair of scenes shows that a lot. And I think Arya is very aware of it. Oh, yeah. um, but, okay, going back to the we can't fight a war amongst ourselves, that was just looked it up. Uh, John did say that to Sansa. He said it after the Battle of the Bastards in Season 6, Episode 10, when they were wrapping their heads around the fact that they now rule Winterfell. Gotcha. Good, okay. good catch, man. Yeah. Uh, then we cut to Winterfell, and Bran is justifiably in a bad mood. Uh, he's talking with Old Man, um, and Bran asks to hear about the scary stories. That's the one he likes to hear. So Old Nan prepared for that. He teed it up. She hauls off and describes the White Walkers, and she's spot on except for the spiders big as hounds. Spencer... Are, did they, are they just going to abandon that? Or are we going to get spiders big as hounds in season eight? I demand spiders big as hounds. We have been promised spiders big as hounds. We've been promised it for seven friggin' years. I want ice spiders big as hounds. Me too. You give me a white bear. W-I-G-H-T bear. Mm-hmm. And you don't give me spiders big as hounds, which has been promised this whole time. I'm going to be mad. I want to see some big spiders in season eight. So uh, can, I'm going to remember that one. Can we compliment this old lady? That this is the only thing I think she's in in the entire freaking show, and God, does she kill it. Oh, yeah. This actress, yeah, she's so good. And it's exactly how I imagined old Nan to carry herself and, oh, yeah. and to sound um, when I read uh, you know, her parts in the books. Oh, I mean, it's notable. The fact that we're still so invested in ice spiders is how affecting and powerful this scene is. As she's described, as she starts off with, oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know about fear? and just continues through this description of the others. It is haunting. You are engaged in this just as much as Bran is. Yeah, I can see why Bran wants to hear that story. Well, then Rob <laughs> busts in, and he dismisses Old Nan's stories. He says that she once told me we all live in the eye of a blue-eyed giant named Makumba. Bran says, maybe we do, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> Who's to say? We don't know. Rob... Then tries to change the subject, because that was sort of a weird comment from Bran. Yeah. Uh, and Bran immediately brings it back to his injury. He says, is it true what the maesters are saying? 
uh, they, about my legs, basically saying, is it true I'll never walk again? Rob can't bring himself to speak a word, but he does uh, gently nod. Brand said he would rather be dead. Rob says, don't ever say that. And Brand says, I would rather be dead. Yeah. Really, really tough scene here. Very, very tough scene. And I had to stop myself from being distracted by how goddamn blue Rob's eyes are. But the scene itself is very tough and affecting. Dreamy man. <laughs> Dreamy man, that Rob Stark. Um, but yeah, it, I do not know how I would be, how I would, how I would fare in Rob's shoes trying to boost up brand in that situation of where there's not much you can really tell to him. Yeah. Life has dealt you one hell of a crappy hand right now. Uh, get better. I'm here for you. So, uh, I'm jumping ahead here, but I think that there's a little bit of uh, comfort that could be given from a line that Tyrion says later on. I'm teasing it now. Oh yeah. Um, but yeah, I think uh, there's some things you can say. Brand does have some, um, I'll just he's say got it. some benefits that other folks. Yeah, okay, I'll say it. Tyrion says if you're going to be a cripple, better to be a rich cripple. Damn straight. Uh, which he's right about, right? I mean, so that's something Rob could have said. He probably wasn't raised to talk about his family as being rich. That doesn't sound yeah. like a very stark thing, but they are. It, it's also probably not the best emotional moment to essentially tell somebody check your privilege. Um, Brand probably needs positive words rather than just trying to browbeat his perspective on the world right now. Well, no, I think you could frame it as we we have the resources sure, sure. to make your life as normal as possible in this world, considering your condition. But it, again, it's a tough scene because you know this poor kid. You know he's probably having suicidal thoughts. He, he I mean, yeah. all we know of Brand at this point is that he's a plucky little kid who likes to climb around, and now he's lost his legs. And how we. Tr- it will be a very notable and important scene emotionally for us next episode when we see what resources he does have to help cope with this. Yeah. All right. We cut back to King's Landing and Catelyn and Sir Roderick are getting to King's Landing. Sir Roderick seems worried somebody will recognize Catelyn. Catelyn dismisses it and then immediately two knights from the City Watch <laughs> recognize Catelyn. <laughs> and they're notably waiting there for to the point that when the two show up in front, two more have whooped around the back. Yep, and they said they've been instructed to escort her into the city. She says, you know, Kat's just enraged. She's like, instructed? Who instructed you? And they don't say. Uh, And then they arrive at an establishment that looks either like a bar or a brothel. Mm -hmm. Uh, They march Kat in. Based on the decor, I was guessing a brothel the first time I watched it. Uh, We get there, and Littlefinger is sitting with some uh, (laughs) scantily clad women, and he dismisses Mm -hmm. them. And Kat is furious. Oh, yeah. She feels as though he has insulted her honor by bringing her to a brothel. Uh, this is probably exacerbated by the fact that like four naked workers come in right after that. <laughs> they don't help. And he, Bad timing. And Littlefinger's such a dick. He 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 dismisses the four that walk in by. <laughs> he snaps and hisses at them to leave. What mm-hmm. kind of boss is that? The Littlefinger kind of boss. <laughs> Littlefinger explains that he only brought her there because he's trying to protect her, as no one will expect her to be there. And you can kind of see on Kat's face she gets the logic, and she kind of calms down a little bit. In terms of her response, does she feel that it's like below a lady of her station that she is in a brothel? Or does she feel, and I almost detect this a little bit in her in terms of reading the letter and her response to it, that she felt that Littlefinger was in some ways making a lewd pass at her. That meet me at the brothel, my dear. Could be. I mean, I think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, 
she uh, she's not happy, but she does. I mean, I, I don't think she can argue the fact that it's yeah. probably a safe place for her. Um, she wants to know how Littlefinger knew she was coming. Uh, and um, then Littlefinger introduces Varys. Varys walks out. This is the first mention we get of Varys' little birds, his little spies throughout the realm. And they spare no time in making his little spies and his wealth of knowledge intimidating as hell. Yeah, seriously. He immediately asks about the dagger. He looks at it. He immediately knows it's Valyrian steel. Um, she, uh, Catelyn asks, do you know who owns this dagger? Varys says no. And then Littlefinger says, well, well, this is a historic day. Something you don't know. But I do. Littlefinger claims that the dagger was his, but he lost it in a bet to Tyrion Lannister. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on this scene, but I have one specific question for you. Please. How in on this whole scheme do you think Varys is? Do you think Varys knows that the the, the dagger was really Littlefinger's? Or do you think Varys, his whole um, participation in this was just to tell you know, Littlefinger that Cat was coming in? I'm not sure, but A, there's a very finite number of Valerian steel blades. So I have a hard time in some ways thinking that Varys probably doesn't know where this blade came from. I also have a hard time thinking that he doesn't know precisely that Littlefinger's lying that it's his. Um, so it's very interesting, given that, that he chooses not to comment or stay out of it. Um, clearly, he's keeping that knowledge close to the vest. The reason why he's doing so is subject to debate. Because, yeah, I'm very much willing to believe that Varys knows exactly what's going on. He seems to know very much about Littlefinger's intentions, much more than Littlefinger even realizes. But he's keeping them all, all to himself. Is it because he's actually kind of okay with Littlefinger sowing the chaos that Littlefinger is doing? Is it because he's just saving the knowledge for his own benefit or for a practical governed benefit later on? We're not sure. Um... But it is really interesting that he keeps all of this to himself from what I think is a pretty wide array of knowledge about what's happening. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's really what... I don't know the answer about Varys, but I do think that's what Littlefinger's doing. He's just making chaos. He's well, he's pitting the, the Lannisters against the Starks. And given what we know that Littlefinger is at least somewhat lying here, how many chaos-moving actions has he already done three episodes in? I yeah. mean... He's essentially arranged for the assassination of John Aaron. He's arranged for Lysatelli to send a false letter. He may or may not, we're not sure, have arranged for assassination of Bran. And now he's implicating the Lannisters again directly in terms of blaming Tyrion for what happened. He we're clearly really, has a strategy. He's doing it every chance he gets. We're only three episodes in, and good God, has he already been busy in terms of this end goal. Yeah, and it, again, it's your point. You've made it many times, but that just makes you more depressed about what they do with Littlefinger's uh, character in later seasons. Or even Varys. I mean, think about Varys in the later seasons. He has jack shit to do. I mean, they act like he has no bears and no no, no little birds, no knowledge, and is constantly surprised by the events that are happening around him. This Varys, the moment he walks into the room, he goes, oh, your poor hands. Oh, let's talk about the dagger. Let's talk about the assassination. Oh, I knew months in advance exactly where you were going to be. Yeah. Where is that Varys in later seasons? Yeah. Not there. Then we cut to Castle Black, and the the new recruits are training, and John is beating up on everybody. Oh yeah. Um, and he's doing it with no mercy. I mean, he's really knocking these guys. Uh, and Alistair Thorne immediately does not like John. Uh, no, calls him bitch. Lord Snow, which is actually the name of uh, the episode. 
It is. And he immediately goes on in, in on John for living a life of luxuries. Like he's born in a, you know, he lived uh, and was raised in a highborn castle and this and that and the other thing. Clearly not liking John and trying to turn the other recruits against him. Yeah, and I, that's how I breathe the scene too, where he's getting, the other recruits are getting beat up in the quote-unquote training that Alistair is putting the room through, but it seems like his main objective here is to just ostracize John from everybody else. Right. Well, while this is going on, we, we cut to Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, Giora Mormont, and mm-hmm. Tyrion, and they're watching, and Tyrion doesn't seem to like how Thorne is talking to John. He just says, charming man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the old bear explains that he doesn't need Thorne to be charming. He needs him to train the new recruits into Men of the Night's Watch. Uh, Tyrion asks how that's going. He says rather slowly. Yeah. Um, and then the, the old bear gives Tyrion a scroll about Bran. Uh, Tyrion, who, you know, we, we've covered this in the previous two episodes where we cover season one, has developed an affection for Bran. And he, he looks concerned. He says good news or bad. And Jorah Mormont says both. So yeah. he's alive. He can't walk. Mm-hmm. Anything on this scene? I, thought, I felt like it was a pretty quick scene. There's a lot of really quick scenes over the course of this. This episode does jump around to a certain degree, which I'm okay with because they're all well-done scenes, but it could be a bit of a point of criticism how fast we are moving between cuts. Yeah. So nothing more to talk about there. We cut to King's Landing, and Pycelle gives Ned a scroll about Bran. And Littlefinger walks in, and he suggests Ned may want to share the news with his wife. Ned says his <laughs> wife is in Winterfell. Littlefinger <laughs> says, is she? <laughs> And Ned apparently follows him, and they go to the brothel, which Littlefinger Littlefinger clearly did not think this through, given that he already knows how Catelyn responded to it. Is Ned going to respond better to your little joke? Yeah, I think Ned, like, immediately thought that this was a a prolonged joke for Littlefinger to call Catelyn a whore. Yeah. And And so Ned starts choking him, uh, and he can manhandle Littlefinger, obviously, and Catelyn pokes her head out of the window and just says, Ned! And Ned, actually, I like the kind of like sheepish look that Ned gets right there. He's like, oh, uh, hmm. Okay, I'm going to let you go now and run to my wife. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, Littlefinger should have set that up a little better, but I think he's just got all kinds of swagger and confidence at this point. Again, another quick scene. I don't have anything more here. Uh, Yeah, it's it's over pretty quick. It transitions. Where did we transition to? I'm actually trying to remember right now. We cut to Castle Black. Uh, And we're jumping around. John is putting his sword away, and he gets bum-rushed by Pip Grimm. And that one other dude um, uh, that ends up aligning himself with uh, the guy from Gin Alley. Oh. Um, kind of a heavier set guy. I don't know his name. I don't remember either. I think he's a show creation to a certain degree. But, yeah. It, yeah. Bearded dude. I don't think we need his name. No need to Google it. Yeah. Um, but it, they, Pip, I think. No, Grimm. I'm sorry, Grimm. Says you broke my nose, bastard! And he, John, turns around and says, "It's an improvement." So they bum rush him, and they got a, a knife to his throat when Tyrion walks in. Tyrion, he he is so cool in these situations. He just he very calmly just starts saying, "Oh, you have some memorable faces. Why do you care about our memorable faces? Oh, I could tell them to my queen or my mm-hmm. sister, the queen." I thought it was interesting that he said. My sister, the queen. I think he. I think the writing here implies that Tyrion wasn't wholly sure that all these boys knew that his sister was the queen. Yeah, very much so. He had to make that clear, right? And the guys back off John, and they go to another part of the room. I thought it was interesting that they kept the characters in the room as opposed to moving them to another room because then they end up hearing the ensuing conversation between Tyrion and John. 
John seems disenchanted that no one told him the night what the Night's Watch really was. Um, he, he seems just kind of let down. I, I think he's been told by folks in his family, folks in the North, it's this honorable institution that protects the realms of men and he gets there. And it's a bunch of people who can't fight and, you know, people who are criminals who chose to take the black rather than uh, be executed. Mm-hmm. Fair criticism from John's perspective, yeah. but my guess is that Ned played up the honor of the Night's Watch because his goal was to get John to take the black to protect him from Robert. Yeah, I that, that that's a theory we offered I think a lot of the last couple episodes, and I think that's very much at play here. That with him now having with him now going off to be hand of the king, with him not being there to directly protect John, and with Robert's influence extending all the way to Winterfell, he felt the need to get John to a safe place quickly. And then peak Tyrion here. uh, Tyrion starts to explain the backstories of Pip and Grimm. He says Grimm's father was left outside a farmhouse when he was... Grimm's father left Grimm outside of a farmhouse when he was three. Pip got caught stealing a wheel of cheese because his sister hadn't eaten in three days. And he says, I've been asking about their backstories. And I think John, that's the first time he softens toward Pip and Grimm. He realizes, yes, they're criminals, but come on. Like, they've had a really tough life. He has a little bit more uh, frustration with them because he says, look, they, they only hate me because I'm better than they are. And Tyrion gives them a little perspective. Um, he's like, look, they, they didn't have the same people training them. They didn't have your Sir Roderick yeah. training you, right? Um, they're learning. Give them a break. And it's interesting. Again, it's interesting that Pip and Grimm are still in the room. They're looking over and hearing this conversation as it goes on. But I, I loved it because I think it's yet again... The bond between Tyrion and John continues to strengthen, and it's Tyrion giving John some perspective that ends up being very helpful for him. Very much so. I and mean, this is a perspective that really influences John's direction in the watch. It influences the closeness of the friendship he's eventually going to develop with these two individuals. And it's all because of Tyrion in this moment. It essentially just tells him that the view you have on the world is from a lofty tower. Let me explain what the life in the muck is actually like for a second. Um, and it's a wonderful lesson that John has probably had told to him to a certain degree before but he's never really gotten it until right now right here and i think it was important that Tyrion share the individual stories of pippin grim very much so these are because here. right and, and it's hard for you it would be i would imagine that as soon as john heard pip's story he no longer thought of pip as a criminal yeah he stole cheese because his sister was literally starving to death would you have done any different Exactly. So I, I and, and of course, he develops a really great relationship with Pip and Grimm later. As a matter of fact, um, you know, yesterday was Thanksgiving, so I had some time to kill. Uh, and I was going over my notes again for this episode. And I got to that scene. And I just paused it. And I went to Watchers on the Wall. Yeah. And I was like, because I just got into the sort of nostalgic thing about John Pip and Grimm. And then later, <sighs> Dolores said, loved it. Yeah. And I watched that episode. That was really good. I can't wait to review that one with you. Um, anything more you have from this uh, scene? Uh, two details. It's Rast. I looked it up for in terms of bearded dude. Rast, uh, okay. And it's also, I think, Grin with, it, with an M, but minor detail. Grin and not Grim? I think so. Interesting. I, 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 can double, was... I will double check that as we continue. Please introduce okay. the next scene. It okay. is Grin. That was quick. Oh, okay, good. Well, all right. Point for you again. You're, you're getting on the leaderboard here. I always thought it was Grim. Uh, we go to King's Landing. Um, Littlefinger, Ned, and Cat are discussing what to do about the dagger. Cat mm-hmm. explains that Peter is like a little brother to me, Ned. He would never betray my trust. So I, here's the thing I'm going to do right now. I'm going to give some life advice to our listeners. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A little life advice from Lee. 
Uh, you can take it or leave it, but I suggest you take it. Let's hear it. Ladies, if you ever put a guy that firmly in the friend zone, don't trust him. <laughs> oh, okay. That's the advice you're going with. When you when you take a guy who's loved you his entire life and you friend zone him to the point that you call him a little brother, yeah. don't then say, oh, well, everything in my life I'm going to trust with this guy because you have just... <laughs> you have just created a uh, a creature that may lash out in a pretty serious way. That ends up what, spoiler, that ends up being what happens here. Um, Peter does say that he will protect Ned, which if I was Ned, I would have been a little frustrated by that. Uh, specifically, like, he to... says, I will keep Ned alive. Yeah, who are you? To... Like, I, I was... I think Ned was being deferential to Cat here, but I think if Cat wasn't in the room, he would have told Peter, like, well, keep me alive. <laughs> who the hell are you? And this is an important moment because a lot of people go, how could he trust Littlefinger later? Because of this moment. Because his beloved trusted wife told him, of all the people in the city, you can trust this man. Because she never heard the advice, don't trust a guy after you put him in the friend zone. She continues to friend zone him and stiff arm him here. And she turns to Peter and says, I won't forget this. You are a true friend. Uh Now, Spencer, I've been friend zoned. Uh, I'm married now, obviously, but in in my past I was friend zoned. I I imagine you've been friend zoned. Mm -hmm. and this is such interesting writing because when you get friend zoned by a woman, they use the word friend over and over with you because they're trying to make it, real. Get it in your head subliminally that yeah. you are a friend. Like, hey, you're a great friend. Hey, you're one you're one of my best friends. They use the word friend, friend over and over again. She continues to do it. I think that she obviously knows where Littlefinger's head's at, and she's trying to move him along to a relationship that that is a little bit different than what they've had in the past. I, and Ned straight up confronts her with it in a later scene, and she just kind of laughs it off. That you know he's still in love with you. What is he? Yeah, I know. <laughs> so she clearly knows this here, and it, it's coloring her words. But I would imagine it's only frustrating Littlefinger. Um, uh, Little Littlefinger says something about um, oh yeah when she says you're a true friend Littlefinger says don't tell anyone I have a reputation to uphold <laughs> pretty funny line yeah and it's an, it is an interesting scene because at this point we don't distrust Littlefinger at this point in the show he looks a little swarmy but everything he's been doing so far seems to be on the side of the Starks and helping them out yep yep it's a great setup uh, for, for later episodes then we cut to Jamie and Cersei and uh, Jamie and Cersei are fighting about Jamie pushing Bran out the wall. I think we talked about this in earlier episodes of this season, but it's so ridiculous that Cersei's trying to assert here that she didn't want Jamie to push Bran out the wall, like she yeah. off the uh, out of the window. She clearly did. Yeah, Cer- Cersei, we were there. We saw it. You you didn't use the literal words, but when you repeat in a somewhat frantic voice, "He saw us. He saw us." The message was there. Yeah, I, I think she she wanted that to happen. She's worried um, that he'll remember because Jamie makes the solid point. He says, "Look, the kid doesn't remember anything," and she goes, "Well, what if he does?" And Jamie, like, he's like the voice of reason here. He's like, "Well, we'll say he's lying, or he he's misremembering, yeah. or we'll say ten. Anything. What do you want? He's ten years old. Like, they're not going to believe that <laughs> we're me, you, and you twins." We're having sex and I pushed him out the window as opposed to this kid climbs every day. He happened to slip. Yeah. Let's, let's consider plausibility of stories here. If we don't have the, if we don't have the wits to defeat a 10 year old, we don't deserve to. But I think in Cersei's panic and then her sort of spinning out of what if uh, scenarios, I think she's really just scared of Robert here. 
Yeah, she is. And Jamie even mocks that, too, about, you know, what's Robert, what if Robert knows? And said, you know, I'll go to war against him. And I think his quote was, they could write a ballad about us, the war for Cersei's cunt. Ooh, working blue again. I wasn't going to say that line. But I think it's the, the confidence from Jamie here is a little ridiculous. You're going to go to war with Robert? Good luck with that. Yeah. King Bobby B is still alive. Jamie, Jamie wants to rebel against King Bobby B. That's going to get shut down in about 48 hours. Yeah. Uh, Jamie is all confidence and swagger here, but as you said, Cersei's kept probably the much more accurate perspective on what Robert's fury would actually be. Yeah, it would be bad news. Um, and then we have this weird scene, and we get a couple of these with Jamie and Cersei, and I know that the show has gotten a lot of criticism about it, where Jamie seems to be holding her against her will. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. It, it, I know that these types of things happen, uh, especially in the time period that this fictional story is supposed to be sort of mirroring. Uh, but it just makes me uncomfortable. I just doesn't like the scene. It, it does, and I think this scene is it's interesting, because it's very much setting up Jamie as being the villain of the story at this early going, of where Cersei's just kind of a passive character wrapped into this world around her that she's not in full of control over, which we learn later is anything but the truth. But the show very early on is, and books too, are setting up Jamie as being the arc villain, which he goes in a completely different direction as time goes on. Yeah, agreed. Well, then we cut to well, Ned's scene cat well, off. One detail. One okay, detail. Fire away. Didn't catch this the first time around. But it's very interesting that they know that Bran has woken up. And the reason they know this, and the hint that the scene is making, is that the reason Pycelle was late in getting the message to Ned was because he went to them first. Which totally tracks with Pycelle's loyalties in later seasons. Very much that. And I didn't catch that. That It is interesting that they know so quick, and it's because Pycelle told them right away, because he is a loyal Lannister stooge. Well, loyal to Tywin, right? Yeah, very much loyal to Tywin, and as a result of that, loyal to protecting the Lannister family. Right. Okay, then we cut to Ned. He's seeing Kat off. She's going to the Vale um, to talk to her sister. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the last time that Ned and Kat ever see each other on the show. <laughs> and I think that they told the actors that that's the case yeah. because they linger a little too long. The... the... It, it's such a great little scene. They're literally trembling and trying not to fall apart as they're leaving each other. Uh, yeah. it, it, in, in the moment, with us out having any perspective, it's just we're seeing, oh, they love each other so much that they, it hurts them to be to be separated like this. But I've, I fully agree with you that they either were given the full script for the season or they were told in advance that you will never see each other again. Keep right. this in mind in this scene. Yeah, and they act it well. In the conversation, Kat keeps pushing that the Lannisters uh, were responsible for hurting Bran. Ned says that in order to take it to Robert, he needs proof. Or Mm -hmm. to do anything about it, he needs proof. And uh, if he has proof, he'll, quote, take it to Robert and hope he's still the man I once knew. Good line. That is a good line. Um, And they they share these wonderful little moments. They both laugh about each other's tempers and, like, watch your temper on the road. My temper? You practically killed Littlefinger right there. Yeah. And they joke about the fact that Littlefinger still has feelings for it, but could not care less because they're still wrapped up in their love for each other. <laughs> yeah, as you pointed out, Ned says he still loves you, and she says, "Does he?" Then <laughs> um, they have their last kiss. Then they have their last kiss, and she's off. Yeah, and I love that this scene is immediately after the scene of Jamie and Cersei. These scenes are clearly meant in counterpoint to each other. Of let's talk about two loving relationships and how one is exceptionally warm and loving and caring and healthy. And one is the opposite of all those words I just said. 
<laughs> yep. Uh, we cut to my favorite scene of great, the episode. Great scene. Robert is just sitting around day drinking. <laughs> <laughs> As he does. And he's just talking at Barristan Selmy. Uh, Selmy, by the way, one of the greatest knights in the history of the Seven Kingdoms. Fair has much. to love this part of the job, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Robert starts by saying he remembers every face of every man he ever killed. Doubt that. Mm-hmm. Uh, he asks Selmy uh, if he remembers his first, first person he, he's killed. Um, Selmy says he killed, I don't know who it, it didn't ring a bell to me uh, who he killed first. A, he didn't a, have a name. A Tyroshi, yeah, which would be a, from one of the, um, somebody from Essos, essentially, one of the Essos people. Yeah, and he didn't know the name. Uh, Robert said his was some tarly boy in the Battle of Summerhall. Mm-hmm. Which, which, anyway, Spencer, do you have a little bit of background on this? Because this didn't quite add up. I'm going to go into this and book nerd bitching with your permission. I'm going to give you the usual options. But yeah, this is an interesting scene because this either brings up an idea that the show writers made a pretty basic error in terms of their own tracking of history, or they're making a comment on the fact that Robert, in remembering his glory days, does not actually have that that accurate of a grasp of the details. That everything's just kind of become a fuzz of positive memories rather than the actual grimy circumstances for what may have occurred. And as much, as much as he talks about, you know, lamenting that they don't tell you about how they all shit themselves when they die or whatever else, he gets some interesting details wrong in terms of describing what he's seemingly saying is just this vivid memory for what occurred. And I'll be curious to talk with you about later, if you could, with your permission, whether we think this is an intentional act on the show's part or just an interesting misstep. Yeah. Okay. We can. We'll probably talk about it later. But I do want to give just a teeny bit sure. of background. T- teeny detail. Um, yeah. The teeny detail is sure. that it's actually the battles of Summerhall. Um, this is when Robert um, had three battles near Summerhall, and he won all three. And that's a big talking point for Robert that he won three battles in a single day. So it's not a surprise that he brings brings up the series of battles um, to Barristan Selmy. It's something he talks about. Constantly. No, no, no. That was his first battle. That was his first command of when he's rallying the support of all the various storm lords. He had to fight three separate hosts and armies in the same day as they were kind of coming, moving together to group at the same location. So yeah, every opportunity he talks about the story because it was an incredible first achievement for a ver- for a rising lord. Yeah, and then he he goes on to explain. He came running at me, this dumb highborn lad, thinking he could end the war with one swing of his sword. Gods, I was strong then. Caved in his breastplate. Man, Robert was really fired up in this scene. He loves talking about his old victories and killing people. This is such a great scene. This is so wonderfully acted, and it's brand new. This is, again, the confidence of the the showrunners. This is not in the books at all. They wrote this from the very floorboards, and it's great. And this is the first time we hear this line, but uh, we hear it multiple times through the series. They never tell you how they shit themselves. <laughs> the show likes to... Look, if you get nothing else from Game of Thrones, when people die, they shit themselves. It comes up a fair bit. <laughs> and, and, uh, and I like the kind of like angry cynicism behind Robert's line. They don't put that part in the songs. <laughs> and then Robert says that if he'd have just stayed on the side, if he hadn't gone into battle... That he could be uh, being made miserable by his wife, waking up to piss three times in the night. I mean, this is clear that Robert is just an unhappy man at this point. He's not enjoying his life. He asked for more wine from Lancel Lannister. Drops this line. This is not going to be line of the episode, but I it's a, a strong one B for me. Mm-hmm. Lancel, God's what a stupid name. <laughs> 
it, it, it just keeps it just keeps going great too it's like Lancel Lannister who named you some half wit with a stutter Lancel <laughs> Lannister <laughs> yeah King Barbie's a funny man uh, Lancel says there's no more wine Robert tells him to go get more wine and when he opens the door he says tell your cousin to come in here in here he calls him Kingslayer yeah uh, my understanding is that Robert continues to call him Kingslayer all the time why does Robert call him that because I think he likes to mock him for it <laughs> I mean, uh, do you really want somebody on your Kingsguard that you call a King Slayer? Ned even brought that up at the time that he decided not to exile Jamie or send him off to the Night's Watch or have him killed or whatever else. To which Robert just kind of flippantly responded, turning to Jamie and saying, eh, don't do it again. What? There's a lot of this that doesn't make sense in terms of how he treats Jamie or keeps him around. But I guess yeah. it's just because he's not willing to, as we've seen before, not really willing to put up with Cersei and her, you know badgering or making him try to force him to do things yeah there's a variety of reasons there right one is robert's just view of of how you deal with a defeated foe which is the best thing to do is forgive them and make them a friend although he's not really making him a friend the second is that he probably um really respects uh jamie's ability to fight uh and jamie could jamie may be helpful later and then he didn't want to alienate the lannisters obviously i mean he needs the gold and the men from the from Tywin's army, uh, and he needs, of course, he's marrying Cersei. It's very true. If he'd exiled Tywin's heir right then, it would have basically been starting another war that they're probably not well-equipped to fight, given that Tywin's army's probably pretty pristine as compared to his own forces. Then, then Robert drops this line, which I really, really liked. Surrounded by Lannisters, every time I close my eyes, I see their blonde hair and their smug, satisfied faces. <laughs> Man, he hates the Lannisters so much. Oh, yeah. I don't... I, I, and I can't tell if he hates them um, because uh, there is. Um, sorry, my dog is barking in the back. He's you're fine, upset. You're can fine. you hear? Can you hear him? Yeah, I can. No, not a problem. Okay. Um, I, I can't. I, if he hates them because he just doesn't like them personality-wise, which I think is probably part of it. He certainly doesn't like his wife, but he also probably resents how much he has to rely on them. They're really a solid basis of his rule. As much as they put up the various fixtures of, you know, House Baratheon as being the ruling family, in every turn, it's the Lannisters that are financially supporting him, they're militarily backing him, and they're politi- providing political support. And they're just a large portion of his cluster of uh, inner advisors, even. Um, yeah. He it, it, it probably does resent the fact that he's basically depending on them to solidify his rule. And Jamie has to just be so embarrassed to be serving him. And I think one of the driving factors for him to continue serving him is that it keeps him close to his sister i yeah i think that is the fundamental reason that he's still putting up with this and hasn't just killed hasn't just killed robert already right he asked jamie who uh jamie's first kill was jamie explains it and barristan and jamie reminisce a bit and it's clear that they have a, a, a very clear respect for each other barristan and jamie very much so. And Jamie very much, and this is interesting, we don't see this with any other character so far, looks up to Barristan. He's very much, you know, glorying and sharing this moment with him. He's like, he's still, as much as he's a very accomplished soldier in his own right, and remember the Kingsguard in his own right, he clearly idolizes Barristan Selmian for damn good reason. Yeah, agreed. Uh, Robert then asked what Ares Targaryen's last words were. And this is interesting that this has never come up. You would think you would have asked this question before as much as Everyone brings up the fact that he kills Ares to him all the time. But, it, go ahead. It, it ties into that scene we had with, with Ned. They really didn't ever ask him about this, it seems. So ben. weird. But Jamie kind of, he the, the, the smirk and the grin from his face uh, fades. Oh, yeah. 
He looks very serious and he said, he said the same thing he's been saying for hours. Burn them all. Jamie leaves and Robert looks a little shook there. It's very apparent that Robert, they've never had this conversation before at all. And Robert never really fully considered or grasped the depth of the Mad King's madness. To him, he was just somebody to defeat. I don't, I don't think he really ever got until this moment that, okay, this was a potentially genocidal maniac that we put down right there. Yeah, and it, it's interesting that Robert didn't ask for any more follow-up there. Uh, I would have, but maybe that's just not <laughs> in his personality. Um, it wasn't but, the conversation he wanted to have right then. Right. Then we cut to Essos. Uh, and Danny is asking questions about the Dothraki uh, from Jorah. My question for you is, how does Jorah know so much about the Dothraki and the language? Like, what's the timeline for that? Because if his whole point in being there is to track Danny and report on what she's doing in, in Viserys. Mm-hmm. How much time did he have to learn about the Dothraki and the language from the time it was announced or he got the information that Danny had been promised to be married to Khal Drogo? I, you know, I think it's something he actually acquired beforehand. I mean, we know that Jorah's been over in Essos for years now. We know that he's been a very accomplished mercenary, served in the Gold Company. And we know the Dothraki don't just know him. They don't just, you know, he hasn't, you know, worked his way in terms of getting knowledge about their culture. They respect him. Cal Drogo, when he walks up, immediately recognizes him by sight and says, Jorah the Andal. He's a person of, of reputation among the Dothraki, which is a notable thing by itself. So it leaves open a lot of unanswered questions about, we don't really know about what the full details of what Jorah did as he was serving as a mercenary, but it clearly was pretty impressive. And he clearly has had some run-ins and experience with the Dothraki beyond simply just getting a six-month cram course for when this particular uh, negotiation to get Danny married in was going to occur. Right. So maybe maybe the timeline of events is Jorah's just over in Essos learning things. Um, then when Danny is promised to Khal Drogo, that's when, you know, Robert's regime basically reached out to Jorah and said, hey, go over there and, and keep tabs on her. Very, very, very possible. It would be a perfect time to bring in somebody with that level of knowledge and that intense desire to get back home to get them involved in the equation. Right. Well, and then, then after the, uh, <clears throat> that conversation, um, Danny sees that the Dothraki are beating a slave. And Danny tells them to stop very much in character with Danny. She really doesn't like slavery. Mm-hmm. She walks into the woods, and this is the second time in an episode where uh, family members have greeted family members with bare steel because Viserys <laughs> just attacks her with his sword out, uh, angry that she is commanding him. Now here, when did, when did she command him? What she, is he talking about? Uh, she commanded the host to stop. And the mere fact that she ordered everyone in the army to stop, he interprets as being an implied order on him too. And he God, is that is so petty. He, he is not emotionally equipped to deal with this at all. That's what I thought too, but I was hoping you could point me to something nah. else because that is so stupid. Yeah. Um, That's well, Viserys this doesn't last long because uh, a Dothraki snaps a whip around Viserys' throat. Uh, mm-hmm. Very much could kill him. Uh, Danny begs him not to. And what I, my favorite part of this scene is when the interpreter tells the Dothraki who has the, the whip around Viserys' throat you know, hey, she says, don't hurt him. He kind of gives her this look like, what? And then the, the interpreter goes, meh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah foreigners, you know, just just deal with it. Yeah. Um, Viserys then, when he can breathe again, asks Jorah to kill them. Uh, Jorah just looks like, yeah, ain't gonna happen. Uh, and then they make Viserys walk. <laughs> it, it, 
it's an interesting scene in a lot, in a lot of ways. I, mean, it, I love that they're making Viserys walk at the end, but it's interesting to see that this this is the first moment we've actually seen Danny now dressing in traditional Dothraki garb. Yep. So yep. She's and, it, it, and I would she, think not coincidentally, it's one of the first times that she is, you know, leveraging her power as the Khaleesi. And it's also notably the first moment where you see where Jorah's true loyalties lie, where he compliments her on her her new queenly nature. First moment when we hear to say Khaleesi, and the first moment that he calls her Khaleesi in terms of respecting her authority rather than Viserys's. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, then we cut to Castle Black. Um, John is walking around Castle Black now. Here's something I noticed in, in a rewatch of this is I really like the Castle Black set from season one, mm-hmm. but I think it's much more CGI than they used in later seasons. I agree. I think they really, it is a nice set. I like how austere and stark, I'm going to use the word stark about 300 times as we review this damn show, but it's a good word to describe <laughs> these sets. Um, but I, I agree with you. It definitely, the wall and the, and the lower set itself looked very much more CGI than I think they did later. I think they used a lot, they actually had the budget to build more practical sets as time went on. Right. Well, John's walking around and he gets on the elevator. Um, the job of the elevator pusher for the Night's Watch has to suck, right? Second only to Lan- Lancel Lannister's job. Yeah. Don't sign me <laughs> up for that one. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think I could have won King Bobby B over if I was Lancel Lannister. <laughs> Not with the name Lancel Lannister, sir. You're, you're, you're done from the get-go with that. I'd, I'd, I'd tell him my middle name, maybe. Um, <laughs> John uh, is walking um, along the top of the wall after he gets to the top of the wall, and he approaches Benjen. And they both look off the side of the wall. Did, did Benjen invite him up here, or is it just John's watch? Because I wasn't sure why they just coincidentally ended up in this. Did not, they're not coincidentally ending up in the same location. I'm curious what brought them to this moment. Uh, my interpretation was that John was looking for him. That's why you, we had so, uh, I think, a prolonged period of John walking. Mm-hmm. Where I think he was looking for something. He didn't see him down uh, at the bottom in Castle Black, so he just went to the top of the wall. I think, and I, I agree, and I think it's because Benjen invited him. Because Benjen even opens this with, I wanted to be here the first time you looked over it. So I think since Benjen knows that he's leaving, he purposely invited John up so they could have this moment together. Yeah, well, I can tell you this: when they're looking off the side of the wall, <clears throat> I didn't like that shot. Uh, I think everybody who knows me or is listening to this podcast knows I am very scared of heights, and that shit made me cringe. It is a beautiful shot. They really do put you in the mindset of, okay, here's 700 feet in the air. Let's see how you experience that moment. Yeah, Benjamin tells John he's leaving. Uh, John's like, "What?" And Benjamin basically says, "Look, I'm first rangers. Rangers got a range. Mm-hmm. So I, I got to get out of range, man." Uh, mention, uh, Benjen mentions a disturbing report uh, that he doesn't want to believe. I imagine it was the report of uh, the the young Night's Watchman who was executed yeah. in episode one. I think so, particularly since I, we hear we have a couple other times of um, them mentioning that over the course of this. Uh, John asked to go with him. Uh, Benjen's like, you're not a ranger. And John's like, I'm better than everybody here. And Benjen challenges him and says, no, you're not. And he says, and this is a potential line of the episode, here a man gets what he deserves when he deserves it. Yeah. It, it's, an, it's another lecture on John understanding his privilege and his station now that he's in this very remarkably uniquely egalitarian organization. Um, he's... As much as Tyrion's advice cut to the heart of that matter as well, he's still not fully there yet. And yeah, I, it's a great line by Benjamin in trying to school him on the fact that this is the Brotherhood of the Night's Watch. Whatever you were before, whatever you think about your skills, this is a di- this is a different and equal organization now. 
you'll get you're not anywhere near ready or have received the uh, accolades to do what you're just so flippantly saying you're ready to do. Right. Then we cut to Tyrion. Um, he's talking with the guy who recruits for the Night's Watch. I don't have his name either. I should have looked that up. Yorin! Yorin! Damn it. That, that, yep. Immediately rings a bell. I'm going to write that down here. So I will call him Yorin the rest of the scene. Um, and they're really just having some drinking discussion. Yorin, I think, is bragging about having eaten bear testicles, I believe. I, I, I like that you just flippantly said, they're having a drinking discussion and then just go to, they're talking about eating bear, te- bear testicles. Has well, that yeah, ever I mean, been a topic between the two of us in our drinking discussions? Well, no, but I mean, I, I am an adventurous eater. So uh, sometimes when I'm drinking, I will talk about like, oh, I eat like sheep intestines or whatever weird thing I've eaten. Uh, well, it comes up. Uh, and, and as this show tells us, in the event we're thinking about bear testicles, they're pretty chewy. Right. And so he fires back to uh, Tyrion. What's the strangest thing you've eaten? Great line. Do Dornish girls count? <laughs> Great line. <laughs> Uh, Tyrion asks if Yorin's job is just to recruit, and Yorin confirms that it is. He goes all over, he tries to find folks, and then Benjen comes in hot. Benjen does not like Tyrion. Um, Immediately, just because he hears Tyrion laughing, says, the Night Watch a joke to you, Lannister. Just an army of gestures in black. And Tyrion says, you don't have enough men to be an army, and none of you are particularly funny. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good line. Uh, Benjen talks about all the men he'll lose north of the wall, really trying to give Tyrion a guilt trip about what they sacrifice so that Tyrion, plump little lords like Tyrion, Mm -hmm. um, can sit there uh, and and have his his fun summer uh, days. Tyrion asks Yorin if he's plump, which I thought was funny. Yeah. Um, Tyrion isn't outright rude here, but he is a bit dismissive. He basically says, I don't know what I've done to defend you. Um, I think the Night's Watch is great. You guys are brave, blah, 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 blah. Benjen cuts him off and says, my brother once told me everything someone says before the word but doesn't matter. Connection to season seven, Spencer. Yeah, this is a, a, a line that we shared between, what was it? Was it between uh, John and Sansa that shared this line back in season seven? Yes, John told it to Sansa. And it, I like it that Benjen apparently added a little bit of euphemism when he was talking to Lord Tyrion about this, because uh, John doesn't uh, condition it as much. That's what apparently the original line was. Yep, but it, I just love these little callbacks to things. And they do—they seem to do it the most around Ned, which is really cool. And well-deserved. Uh, <coughs> but it's, in, it's notable that, you know, Tyrion's view is that wildlings aren't really different from us. They just happen to be on the other side of the wall when it was built. And Benjamin immediately agrees. He says, yeah, they're a little rougher than we are, but they're just people. But it's not them that I'm worried about. And Yep, that's it, not what keeps me up at night. And then he pretty much just exits stage left. Yorin gives him a bit of a hug, and this is the last we're going to see Benjen for about five years. And then Tyrion ends the scene by saying to Yorin, I think he's starting to like me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's not quite the end of the scene. He does tell Yorin that they should travel together. Yeah. So Yorin and Tyrion are going to travel back to King's Landing together. <clears throat> Cut to Essos, and Danny's hair is getting braided during her Dothraki lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, she seems to be making progress. Uh, she's, she's, she's working on learning the language. Oh, she's, and she, she's developing in a few ways, as it turns out. Ah, uh, exactly. Look at you, double entendre. Mm. Um, her handmaid starts feeling her breast uh, and asks <laughs> when her last period was. Very kind of, you know, intrusive there. I, I've never had that conversation with a friend before. It feels a little bit, as you said, intrusive. Yeah, it's a little weird. Uh, but then she just proclaims Danny as pregnant. Now, uh, this seems a bit premature to me. I don't know how this lady is equipped to just feel her breast 
ask about the last time she had a period, and then immediately say, yes, you're pregnant. Yeah, I, I never really realized that the practice of, you know, um, maternity medicine was so simple. Brief, brief grope, ask for a date timeline, done, you're pregnant. See you in six months. <laughs> but anyway, let me cut to Jorah. And this speaks to your point about how the Dothraki like and, and respect Jorah, because he's talking to one of the Dothraki foot soldiers, um, or I guess blood riders, um, and he's making the case. They're just having a discussion about the swords they use and the way they fight. And Jorah makes the point that the, the Arik, I believe is what it's called, mm-hmm. that the um, the Dothraki use is great if you're on a horse um, for big you know sweeping cuts as you go by. Um, but he makes the case that if you're fighting somebody in full uh, plate of armor, their sword is better because it can actually pierce the armor. And I love that this proves remarkably relevant about seven episodes from now. It does, yeah. The guy doesn't seem to get it. He's like, why do you wear these, what did he call them? Metal dresses or something? Metal dresses, yeah. <laughs> and he, and he Jorah corrects him and says armor. armor. The guy's trying to learn the common time. Yeah. He does say armor back at him. The guy asks about uh, Jorah's dad. And this is the first time I think we get Jorah directly talking about his father. He says his, da- his father is a great warrior. He still is. He's still alive. And that Jorah betrayed him. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting scene, or it's an interesting sharing of cultures. As you said, they clearly, uh, the Dothraki clearly respect Jorah. They're allowing him a freedom of interaction and connection with him that you don't really see anybody else doing. Um and so it's very interesting to see them to have this little banter of moment of just talking about where their technologies and tactics cross over. Uh, I, I believe this character's name is uh, Rokaro. Ooh, um, okay. Because I think he's one of Danny's blood riders here going forward. So we kind of see him always around as basically Danny's designated guard. Yeah, and, and stays her blood rider, right? Yeah. Um, he's, he's one of the few that stay with her after Khal Drogo. R.I.P. Spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. Uh, then the handmaid comes in. Um, and says that Danny doesn't want to eat horse meat that night. <clears throat> so she asks about rabbits, and they're like, "No rabbits and ducks. Do you see ducks around here?" They're, they're getting irritated, and then she goes, "Well, what about dogs?" And Jorah steps in there, which I thought was hilarious, and just kind of very politely says, "I don't think yeah. she wants to eat dog." No. <laughs> I love the banter between Eri and Rokara here. Between, as you said, I love the little side glance they give each other in the prior scene, and I love this little banter the two of them have as well. They clearly have known each other for a while before they've been assigned to uh, Danny. What, what is the handmaid's name? Uh, I believe her name is Eri. Eri. Okay, so Eri um, says Danny is pregnant. And Jorah looks flabbergasted. He gets quiet and says he'll have the boys butcher a goat for her. Here's a question for you. Why was why was Jordan Jorah holding out the goat for Danny? <laughs> if you had a goat, why didn't you say okay? Like he, she has to be pregnant in order to get a goat. You, you, you got to be protective of the variety. As we talked about previously, like ninety five percent of their diet is horse. You know how much that goat is probably worth. You know she's a Khaleesi. She's supposed to be like the number two. Yeah, like but she should get the goat if she wants the goat. Yeah, but it's a Tuesday. You, you save that for the meaningful occasions. You don't just bring it out because she's in the mood for something a little bit spicier. I don't necessarily disagree with that logic. I just don't know why Jorah is the gatekeeper to the goat. Yeah, that that's interesting. Is that apparently near, neither Eri nor Akaro know about the goats. These are just like little Jorah's private collection that he keeps with his boys, wherever whoever they are. <laughs> so weird. And then sketchy ass Jorah gets up and says he has to ride to Quora. Uh, yeah, this... Quora. Yeah, I think that's what he Cohor. said. Cohor, 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 Cohor. Okay. Anyway, I'm learning Dothraki here. Uh, no, yeah, no, I mean, no. That, that's actually Valyrian. That's one of the. That's one of the free cities. Yeah, it's still it's hard to pronounce. Yes. Um, 
Sketchy Asteroid gets up, he leaves, um, and he says he'll catch up with them later. Yep, and we're left to ponder what very obviously sketchy thing he's going off to do, because at this stage, we don't know that he's a traitor, essentially. No, but it, it is a little, like, when you rewatch it, it's like, ooh, it's kind of obvious that as soon as he figures out she's pregnant, he's like, I gotta go. We're meant to have suspicions. Right. Back to Castle Black, and John is training again with Pip and Grimm, but this time it's different. Uh, he seems to be helping them out. He's not hitting them as hard, and he's giving them advice. Mm-hmm. Um, Tyrion is watching through a cracked door and clearly approves. It's it's clear to Tyrion, I think, that his uh, his advice, his lesson to John about these guys and how he should treat them has, and, has taken hold, and it, and it, they're starting to develop a relationship. Very much, and you can see there. It's already enough time has apparently passed that they're already getting closer with John. They're already trusting his advice. They're already even just straight up smiling at him as they're training with him in the yard. I don't know how much time has passed between point A and point B, but it's clearly mattered. Right. <clears throat> Tyrion's drinking, and he's talking with Maester Aemon and Gior Mormont. Do, do, and... you, do you even need to say Tyrion's drinking in any scene? <laughs> I just thought it was funny that he was meeting with like, Maester Aemon, of all people, and still drinking. Um, <laughs> Good point, actually, yeah. <laughs> um, Tyrion then says he's lived through eight winters, he thinks. Um, but Master, Maester Aemon says that this summer has lasted nine years. I want to see a timeline for all of these winners that Tyrion has lived through. Because I think this would put him at like 45 years old. Yeah, I winter's very remarkably in length. And I believe they've, winter's and summer's very remarkably in length. I think they've talked about that this has been the longest summer in anyone's memory. This has been a very long summer. And that the kind of thoughts about that is, is that because of that, there'll be long winters. I think Tyrion even says either in this episode or another point that the winter he was born in lasted a year. So... There may well have been eight winners. I don't actually have a timeline here in front of me, but they vary remarkably in length. It's not consistent at all how long they go. Right. Uh, Maester Raymond seems to be thinking uh, that they're about to enter fall. Um, I guess he's been in communication, I would imagine, uh, with uh, the Citadel. Yeah. Who track this stuff. Uh, and Jura says that they've been capturing more wildlings. Uh, lately because they're running south. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they claim they've seen the White Walkers, and Tyrion, of course, is dubious. Yeah. Now, this is when it starts to become clear what this meeting is. Um, it's a bit of a sales pitch for more men before winter. Mm-hmm. Mr. Eamon is very honest about the state of the watch here, and it's something that I don't think that G.R. Mormont or Mr. Eamon would do with very many people. Um, Tyrion seems sympathetic, but he doesn't believe the greater threat from the north, uh, and I think he knows he probably couldn't su- be successful in lobbying Cersei uh, for more men anyway, so he makes no promises. Yeah. One thing, I mean, he has pretty flippant responses to a lot of things. One thing he doesn't really have much of a response to is when they bring up that one Night's Watch guy that got away that Ned Stark beheaded, is that it's not just the wildlings. This one guy said that he saw the White Walkers kill his brethren to the moment Ned Stark cut his head off. And Tyrion just kind of looks down at that. It's like, yeah, I don't really have a flippant response to that one. Right. Anyway, we... As you said, as you, this is a sales pitch. They're desperately trying to get Tyrion as their ace in the hole to get some funding back from King's Landing. But as you said, Tyrion knows enough about his family, knows enough about Robert and his sister that there's don't count on there being much in the way of prisoners to draw from that. Much, much in excess of prisoners to draw from there. Agreed. Then we cut to the shortest um, scene of the episode. This is Essos and Danny and Cal uh, are lying in bed, <clears throat> and Danny tells uh, the call that it's a boy. Offers no evidence as to how she knows that. Um, so we, in this same episode, we have you have a you have 
large, larger breasts. You haven't had a period in a while. Therefore, you're pregnant. And then Danny saying, well, I've been told I'm pregnant. And now I've intuited it's a boy. It, it, it was an off scene that they chose not to show, but Erie then groped her for another 25 minutes afterwards, and from that determined it was a boy. Because that's how that particular uh, cultural understanding works. Oh, yeah. Makes sense. Uh, then we cut to Castle Black. And Tyrion is making good on his promise that he made to um, uh, Jamie, Cersei, Tommen, and Marcella to yep. piss off the wall. It's great. Uh, and then John and Tyrion say their goodbyes. John then says, you know, he asks if if Tyrion will be stopping by Winterfell. Tyrion's like, yeah, probably. I mean, it's a smart place for me to stop. Uh, he says, well, if you see my brother Bran, tell him I miss him, and that I'd visit if I could. And they, they shake hands and they part for what will be the last time until season seven, I guess. Yeah, it is. But this is the this is when Tyrion actually drops the line I mentioned earlier in the yeah. episode. Uh, I think in a way to reassure John, but also just stating facts. He says, if you're going to be a cripple, it's better to be a rich cripple. Yeah, and that is incredibly true wisdom. It's true. It's it's something he knows very much from his own perspective, too. He ta- he's told John previously that if I'd been born into a common family, they would have left me on a hill to die. That I'm a Lannister of Castle Rock. If you're going to be a cripple, bastard, or broken thing in this world, a d- or I don't remember the exact line right now, but it's much better to do so in terms of a family of luxury. Right, absolutely. Um, so then we cut to King's Landing, and Arya arrives at her sword training. Oh my god, oh my god, it's Cereal! The dancing master. Um, he's a bit quirky, uh, but he is supportive immediately. Like he, th- The first thing he does is he tosses her a wooden sparring sword, and she doesn't catch it, and he says, tomorrow you will catch it. Yeah. So giving her encouragement right away. Um, I will do a shout-out to this actor to this day. Uh, provides water dancing training at cons. So if you go to Con of Thrones uh, over uh, the July 4th weekend next year, uh, check it out. He's, it's, uh, he's pretty, awesome. It's pretty good. He's, yeah. really, he's really fun to see when he's at the cons. He has such a blast doing it and makes it fun for everybody else that's there. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't done it. I think we'll do it one of these years, but I, I've heard enough <laughs> uh, from folks um, who I trust who have done it to recommend it. Arya seems to like him right away. I oh, mean, yeah. she is in her element here. Um, he says, one of the things he says, though, that I think is interesting, that I'd, I'd, I want a little uh, book nerd perspective from you. He says he was the first sword to the Sea Lord of Bravos. Mm-hmm. What's that position, Spencer? Uh, it's a, not very well described from what I can say. Are you asking about what the first sword or what the Sea Lord is? Uh, either one. Okay. I mean, Bravos itself is one of the most is one of the northernmost of the free cities. It was kind of the rebel from the other free cities and that was founded by runaway slaves from the Targaryen Empire. And it kind of enforces a very strict anti-slavery policy extending into the other uh, free cities on the edge of, of uh, Essos. The Sea Lord is essentially the ruling position of debate, a kind of amorphous authority itself, and that there's a, a large series of noble families that also hold a certain degree of sway in Bravos. The First Sword is respected as being the finest warrior in all of Bravos, and he's kind of, I would interpret as being the, the enforcer and executor of the Sea Lord's will. So the fact that um, Sarah Farrell held this position is an incredible honor, an incredible statement of what, what his abilities are and leave it all just the more open. And this is a truly unanswered question. That's never been answered in the books or show how Ned found him. Yeah. I have that. I have that here in my notes is why did, I mean, of all people for Ned to get to train her, like it seems so bizarre. 
I mean, it's again a testament to how much Ned cares about his daughter that he was so quickly arranged such a high quality teacher to teach her sword play because he knows how much it would mean to her and how much of a valuable gift it would be. Um, but it's just amazing to ponder. There's, I don't think there's enough time to say that he actually sent a message off to Bravos to have this guy shipped over. Maybe there was. Maybe there was a large jump in time. I doubt it. But that just raises questions of why Cyril Farrell was just hanging around in Westeros, much less in King's Landing. Yeah, there's some theories about that. There are, which we'll get to in later seasons. Yeah, I don't know that they're going to bear out. I don't think we have enough time. Um, but Arya seems to be a pretty good student. Um, she's eager. She's listening. She's more engaged and cooperative in this scene than she is in all of the rest of uh, the episodes we've seen so far. Oh, yeah. um, and she also seems pretty good for a little girl doing this for the first time. She's picking it up. I think they give us just enough to show that Arya is liking this and she's learning. Um, and as she's engaged uh, with Cyril Forel, uh, Ned comes to the door and he's watching her. And I can't, every time he has a scene like this where he's sort of admiring Arya for what she truly is, not what a lady is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I, I just have it in my mind that he, he's just seeing Liana in her yeah. and it makes him happy. Very, very much so. And you look at the pride that's on his face as he watches his daughter fight, his happiness that... A, that she's happy, and B, that this gift went over decidedly better than Sansa's doll. Um, but <laughs> yeah. it immediately transitions into a very interesting and beautifully done scene of the various sound effects that are occurring start becoming decidedly more real. And you start just seeing how much the wars of Ned's past still haunt him, and that he almost immediately transitions into almost like a PTSD state as he observes this. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think they did that purposely, how they played with the sound as they honed in on Ned. But I do think that um, we're meant to, to to believe that Ned does have an admiration for his daughter. Very much. He, respect, he respects that, you know, hey, this is what she really is, and she's embracing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think he linked her up with somebody pretty good. Well, that is the end of the recap. Spencer, anything else you want to say about the episode before we jump into best line? Uh, just a last, a one last comment to offer about this scene. Uh, you see at one moment in the scene when uh, the actor who plays Sarah Farrell, or Sarah Farrell himself, flips his blade up on his hand and catches it and then flips it back. That was in, as we saw from the con we recently had, where we saw him um, giving his little presentation, uh, that was entirely unscripted. He just felt that would be in character, and so he just did it, and they had to edit out the sound of the entire production crew gasping when he so casually did that. Yeah, and he does it at the cons. It's, it's, a, it's a pretty good trick. He still, can still do it all these years later. Yep. But uh, So over before we go into quotes, whatever else, what was your overall view of this episode? I loved it. I think it was a transitional episode, and I think that's why we had so many scenes, because they're setting up things. Mm-hmm. But they did do some character development. I mean, specifically um, Arya. I think there was some some good character development there. Um, and, you know, I, I love the scenes when King Bobby B's being King Bobby oh, B. Yeah. We don't get a lot of them uh, because, you know, he uh, he passes away, uh, R.I.P. Um, and because he's, he's not a point of view character. These are all created by the show. We'd never see through Robert's eyes in the books. And so every time they give us a scene of him, treasure it because it's something they really made out of whole cloth. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I... I really liked the episode. Um, I, I'm not going to say it was a dip in quality from episode one or episode two. I think it's it's on par with the, the previous two episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I give it, I don't know, maybe a nine, nine and a half. It's it's just really quality TV, these first few episodes of the season one. I, uh, I very much enjoy it, too. The writing is stellar. The, the acting is beautifully well done. The scenes are perfectly set up. The only complaint I would offer, and it's one you may pick up on, is that there are a lot of cuts. There are a lot of jumping between scenes to the point of when there's a couple scenes that are about 15 seconds long. 
Uh, I think they could have maybe smushed a few of them together, but I can't really complain because each, even these little 15 second scenes are really well done. And important. Like if you look at that scene with Danny and Kyle, it is important that Kyle Drogo believe that the, the child in Danny is a boy. Right. And because that changes his, his thoughts about the pregnancy. And it's important to show just how far their relationship has progressed in terms of they're just quite, they're quietly cuddling and lying together, clearly very fond of each other, as she's speaking fluent Dothraki to him just casually. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep, agreed. So, I, yeah, I think we're we're in agreement here. Good episode. Fine. Still enjoying the season one recap. We're looking forward to recap of episode four. But before we get there, let's finish up this uh, episode of the GOT Got Questions podcast by jumping into best lines. Spencer, you want to start or you want me to start? Uh, I'll jump in with the first one. I got a few. Uh, we'll start with, uh, Jamie and Ned's duel of words. Uh, very handsome armor. Not a scratch on it. I know. People have been swinging at me for years and always seem to miss. You've chosen your <laughs> opponents wisely then. I have a knack was, for it. Oh yeah. Yeah. You always oh, so you were doing the whole thing. I'm, yeah. I would have, uh, choose, sorry about that. I, I was going to choose the one before that. Please. I think the God, I think the gods you're here, Stark. Oh yeah. About time we had some stern Northern leadership. There's a, we're going to do like three or four quotes with this one scene. It's just, I'm going to throw in another one. Tell me, if, if I stabbed the Mad King in the belly instead of the back, would you admire me more? What's the line? The king shits and the hand wipes? We're, we're up to four. Are, are, have we finished this scene? <laughs> or do we have more? I'm done with it. I'm done with it's it. It's a good scene. Um, I, I wouldn't put this in the top list, but it's just so summarizing Cersei's view of the world, both from her own experiences and also conditioned by Tywin. When she's talking with Joffrey, she says at the end, everyone who isn't us is an enemy. It, that that is Cersei's view for the world in five in one two three four five six, seven lines. Um, I liked this one. I think it you can read a lot more. It, this sounds like a, just a sort of conversational line, but you can read a lot more into it if you want to. There will be no plans until I speak with Robert. Mm-hmm. It's it, Ned trying to assert himself as the hand. And they do at least from appearances respect his authority right then, right there. Another great Ned line, and this is a truism if there ever was one, <sighs> war is easier than daughters. <laughs> Very good one. Yeah, I was going to point that one out. Next one. We've come to a dangerous place. Can't fight a war amongst ourselves. Oh, yeah. Very much so. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole one other than like the first line of it, but essentially everything old Nan says. Uh, I'll just open it with my... And this one is just so quotable. Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know about fear? And then everything she says for about a minute afterwards. Spiders, big as hounds. Yes. <laughs> I, oh, God, that, that lady did so well for her one scene on this show. Um, yeah, uh, I think we can move on there. Uh, well, we could probably nominate I'd Rather Be Dead. Yeah, probably. Um, this, one, I, this isn't much of a line, but I just love how uh, Sean Bean says it, and I just love the moment. Of when he's grabbing Littlefinger by the throat and he just looks at him and says, You're a funny man. A very funny man. Yeah, that was good. Really well acted. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't have anything from that King's Landing scene when the brothel. I, I got, I mean, I... I'm going to skip the one about the War of Cersei's Cunt because, eh, whatever. Um, yeah. I got like eight, I got like eight in the War Stories scene. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of those too. Let's jump to it. Okay. Uh, everything they say is awesome. But yeah. <laughs> in terms of like really quotable lines, 
Robert's saying, gods, I was strong then. It's just a great line. It just mm-hmm. wraps up all the nostalgia in which he sees the world, of where everything presently is crap and everything back then was awesome. Uh, I'll do Lancel Gods. What a stupid name. <laughs> Robert's so great. Oh, Mark Addy does so well with this character. Destroys it. Um, and then this line, which is a very interesting line, but as much as Robert's glory in the past, he does have perspective on it. They never tell you how they all shit themselves. They don't put that part in the songs. <laughs> Um, surrounded by Lannisters. Every time I close my eyes, I see their blonde hair and their smug, satisfied faces. I really like that one. I probably won't choose that one, but man, I did. I really like how he just tips his cards. Um, don't know if he would have done it if he hadn't been drinking, because he was yeah. pretty, pretty direct. But it really lets you know what he thinks of the Lannisters. Um, we've already mentioned the half wit with a stutter line, which is really, really funny. Um. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to go on to basically the Abbott and Costello routine the two of them do about, what are you doing? It's empty, Your Grace. What do you mean, empty? There is no more wine. Is that what empty means? (laughs) (laughs) That was funny. funny. Uh, I'm going to cut to the end of this this, uh, scene when Jamie says, he said the same thing he'd been saying for hours. Burn them all. And I... I might pick that one for best line of the episode because it's a powerful line. We you don't get to choose. I don't get to choose, but we as the audience did not know that until that moment. And we kind of share the same shocked expression that Robert does the first time we watch that. Moving on. I'm going to do a couple from Benjamin, Yorin, and Tyrion talking. Oh, good. Uh. This is just a funny line. It's kind of throwaway, but I know what bears balls taste. They're a bit chewy. How about you, my lord? What's the strangest thing you've eaten? Do Dornish girls count? Funny line. Yeah, I will go before that to Benjen when Benjen says, Here a man gets what he deserves when he deserves it. Oh, yeah. That's a good one. Um, and I'll, I'll offer this one just because I, I like the passion in Benjen's statement, and I love just how flippant even then that Tyrion is in response to it. They die in pain, and they do it so plump little lords like you can enjoy your, their summer afternoons in peace and comfort. To which all Tyrion has in response, do you think I'm plump? <laughs> Agreed. Very funny. Um, uh, we'll, how about, I think he's starting to like me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, 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 I will only offer this just because I love that they hearken back to it six seasons from now, but his line his line about you know my brother once told me nothing someone says before the word but really counts i just love yep. that they hearken back to that six seasons later that's good uh i'll nominate if you're going to be a cripple it's better to be a rich cripple yeah uh my last one just because the actor who plays meister Eamon is just so good uh yeah. and so the passion he puts into his final line of the episode when winter comes gods help us if we're not ready Yep, and that's it for me, too. A lot of good lines here. Oh, yeah. um, so. It, it is your call, sir. All right, here we go. Best line of the episode, season one, episode three. Lord Snow is. He said the same thing you've been saying for hours. Burn them all. <laughs> and I hope y'all didn't persuade you on that one. But God, that is a powerful line and powerful into a scene. No, that was always going to be the one. I mean, that, that, there is that, that line is more charged than any that we've had in probably the season so far. 
Oh, that's one of the most charged lines of the entire freaking show. And the I've Nikolai what's his name? What's his name? Nikolai Costa Waldo. Oh, uh, it's the one moment we see him deathly serious. Yep. Everything else, even when he's talking with Barrison, who he clearly idolizes, there's always a half smile on his face. In this, it falls away, and you just see the pain and the trauma that's in him as he says this line, and it's enough to just shatter Robert out of his just kind of drunken whimsy, and. It's such a powerfully well done scene. Completely agree. Uh, great scene, great line, great episode. Let's move on to book nerd bitching. Spencer, you got some topics for us? I got a few. Uh, I'm going to limit us to, well, I'm going to let you pick how many, but I think two or three are probably reasonable given that we've been talking for two hours. Um, let's see here. All right. As per usual, we like to do it this way. I'm going to give you some options. You're going to pick okay. the ones you want me to do, and we go from there. This time around, I got five for you. Woo. You know, I'm, tr- I'm tr- given how much I adore this season, I'm either going to be a little bit pickier than I normally am, or I'm also just going to develop on scenes that they haven't, have, either haven't fully explained, won't fully explain, or just will explain so far in the future, we might as well talk about them now. Qualifies for the segment. Okay. Option, option number one, Littlefinger's history with Kat and Brandon. We've heard vague mentions of a duel, but what actually occurred, and how does that tie into not only his relationship with Kat, but also his relationship with Lysa? Option number two, Old Nan and Duncan the Tall. Old Nan wanted to tell a story about Duncan the Tall. What do we actually know about Old Nan's relationship with Duncan the Tall, and how does it prove relevant to characters that we actually have in the present? Uh, option number three, Alistair Thorne and why he's a dick. We talked about why Alistair Thorne seems to hate John. Is there a reason for it beyond simply his own personality being unpleasant? Now, this one's not going to make any sense to show only watchers, but Donald Noy and the cutting of characters. There is a character in this show, or in the books, that is massively important and massively awesome. They have cut him from the show, and you can see it in this episode that they intend to do so, and how it has affected other characters in terms of trying to divide up his level of awesomeness between them. And finally, and this will be a multi-part one if you pick it, War Stories. We got a little bit of hints here as to Barristan, Robert, and Jamie's backgrounds in terms of their initial experiences with war. And they are fascinating and multifaceted, and it is both an interesting mix of history and also an interesting debate about whether the show makes a kind of interesting error, whether the show was at this point intending to write out an otherwise important character. And also, yeah, as I said, it gives us an interesting view into our various characters' backgrounds in terms of uh, analyzing what exactly they're talking about in the history. So, those are your five options, sir. Pick between them as you so wish. Okay, so... I'm going to not pick the cutting of the character Donald Noy. Okay. And the reason for that is I think we're going to have ample opportunity to talk about that character, who is not included in the show, uh, in future episodes. Um, he's a really great character in the books and there's the, uh, as a point you've made to me many times. And, and I think people who have read the books and watched the show closely will notice that the stuff that he does in the books has to be peppered in the show. So it's sort of like grabbed by different characters. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to be able to talk about Donald Noy in future episodes. So let's not talk about him here. Perfectly agree. Um, I, I, I the Alistair Thorne thing, like I don't like him, um, <laughs> Littlefinger's history. I think we can we can touch on that in later episodes. Sure. Uh, I'm going to go with Old Nan and Duncan the Tall and the War Stories of Barristan, Robert, and Jamie. 
So when you start with Old Nan and Duncan the Tall, it might be a good idea to give a little background on who Duncan the Tall is. Now you can help me with this. You were as big a fan of the Duncan Egg stories as I am. So Dun Sir Duncan the Tall is the central character of a kind of side series of novellas that are set, what would you say, about 100 years before the uh, main series starts? Yep, just about 100. Uh, that are set while the Targaryens are still very much in power. They're at a weaker stage of their power where they've survived a series of basically two ser two very serious civil wars now, but they're still in place. Uh, Dunk the Lunk, Dunk will eventually become Sir Duncan the Tall, is essentially a traveling hedge knight who, through a series of events, takes on the a young Targaryen prince as his squire, seemingly for the purpose of showing him what the world is actually like. They are delightful, they are lovely, and it is a very painful but it's a disappointment that HBO's next show is not going to be doing these stories. Um, but I agree. I agree. I'll give a little bit more background on Duncan the Tall. Please. Uh, Duncan was... <clears throat> Dunk was raised in Flea Bottom. Mm -hmm. He became the, became the squire of a hedge knight. A hedge knight is like kind of a hired hand. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's not really pledged to any particular house. This man was named Arlen of Penny Tree. Um, and he served as the hedge, uh, the squire of Harlan of Pennytree until Arlen's death. Duncan mm -hmm. claims that Arlen knighted him right before he died. That is a point of contention. Uh, yeah. It's not proven either way. It's strongly he, implied based on the various actions he does in different scenes that he didn't, but we don't know. He uh, goes to uh, the turn a tournament, which was called the Tournament of Ashford Meadow, and it was really his last-ditch attempt to, to gain some wealth. And there he met Prince Aegon, um, a young prince who was nowhere near in the line of succession, uh, who was there with his family, and they developed a bond. And yeah, Just to be clear on that point, uh, Aegon is, I think, the third son of a third son. He's that far removed from the actual line of succession. He's so far removed that the Targaryens were comfortable with him being a squire of Duncan, Dunk the Tall, who was a hedge knight who was just running all around the Seven Kingdoms. So mm -hmm. they were okay with him just basically doing a summer abroad type thing. Um, <laughs> An interesting series of events we won't spoil in terms of what led them to make that decision. But yeah, as much as they felt obliged in some ways to do it, it wasn't a big loss to them to send insignificant Prince Number 2 off somewhere. Right. Yeah, I won't talk any more about the Duncan Egg stories because if you want to read them, I don't want to spoil that. But it, you you do know from just the text of A Song in Ice and Fire that Aegon, despite being like way down in the line of succession, does actually become king. And Duncan uh, becomes the Lord Commander of his King's Guard. Yeah, both his father and he do a very complex series of plagues and other disastrous events um, come into power. Um it, they're wonderful novellas. There's moments I almost enjoy them better than the actual uh, main series, and so I would recommend mm -hmm. them to anybody who wants to read them. But in terms of focusing on this, w the full story of Dunk of Duncan the Tall has not been completed, but we do know in terms of what the next book in the novella is supposed to be is called The She-Wolves of Winterfell, that he is going north to the Wall. Uh, we know that from the end of the last story and also from the name of the next one. One other thing that we do know is that when Bran eats the Weirwood paste, which we've talked about before, and has this long series of visions. Jojen paste. We don't know that. It's very possible. We don't know that. Um, as Lee was just referencing, it's a popular theory in the fandom that at one point Bran, when he's underneath this great weirwood tree, learning from the children of the forest and from the one-eyed raven, um, he receives a what he's told is a paste of weirwood seeds that look oddly bloody and taste oddly salty and irony. And notably... 
we're told that sacrifice is a key aspect of awakening your powers as a green seer. We also notably never see Jojen again after this scene. Is it possible that jo Jojen was turned to paste? He seemed to have some prophecies about his death coming. We don't know. We don't. Have, we haven't seen enough, but it's a popular theory. But regardless, he has these visions uh, after he takes this paste, before he's actually now able to connect into the Weirwood net and see the various things the Weirwood trees have seen and ha have seen both in the present and also long into the past. He kind of latches into the tree that's in the center of Winterfell and in the Godswood and sees various key moments that seem to happen in the history of this particular tree. As he's flashing between these various moments where he very obviously sees his father at several stages of his life, he sees even, he doesn't know her, but his Aunt Lyanna and maybe possibly Benjen or uh, Ned fighting with swords. Cuts through various ones of these, but he then sees a woman tall as a spear kissing a knight as tall as Hodor underneath the tree, standing up on her toes that she can reach, reach up and do it. This is an interesting scene, which has led to a very popular theory in the fandom. Because we know that Old Nan is, I think, the grandmother or great-grandmother of Hodor. Do you remember that one for sure? I believe she's the grandmother. Grandmother. But we know that she is part of Hodor's family tree. We also know that Hodor has been rumored to have giant blood in him, because Hodor is friggin' massive. It has been rumored and pretty strongly believed that, from this little odd vision, that Old Nan may have had a bit of an affair with Sir Duncan the Tall. Because we have had said several times that Dunk is Dunk the Lunk is incredibly tall. Tall, tall and big as a castle wall. Um, and we know that he's going up to Winterfell, and we know from the timing of when these visions occurred that it would fit almost perfectly for when he was going to be there. We've had no other prior explanation for how suddenly giant blood or just really bigness gets into Old Nan's family line, other than we see a woman kissing Sir Duncan the Tall underneath the weirwood tree. So this has led to a very popular theory that very possibly Hodor is a descendant of Sir Duncan the Tall, along with a couple other characters, well, at least one other character, main character in the series. So it's fun to tie in these little bits and these little visions that are so classically endemic to the books to associate with various things that we see in the present. Uh, the other, not to be coy, the other heir that we have strongly implied to be his is uh, Brienne of Tarth, who at one point picks up the very shield that uh, um, uh, Dunk the Lunk used at that first tournament at Ashford. So, yeah, it's an, it's an interesting little theory. It's very possible that it is the case, and it's fun that Old Nan is the one that keeps on pushing these stories about Sir Duncan the Tall, because she may still be thinking about that wonderful affair they had 80 or 90 years before. Right. 80 or 90 years? It, yeah, that would that would have to be the timeline. I mean, if, if it old isn't... Old Nan is old. Old Nan is freaking ancient. The actress, I think, is in her 90s. And I think the character she's playing is meant to be up, upwards of 100. Woo! But, yep, that's just a little, just a little side little note. You can run that by committee if you like, or I can move that move on to our next uh, talk, topic of war stories. Uh, yeah, that one has gotten uh, mired in committee. Um, <laughs> but we are going to wait till we get the new Congress in January and present it again, because it is a bit speculative. Uh, um, is, that, is, that uh, one, is, that, is that one going to occur before or after the depositions of James Comey? Oh, going to have to be after. Going to have to be after. We're going to do this one. We're going to put it back through in February. I think it'll pass then. But it, it is a bit speculative. I like it. I choose to believe it. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have enough textual evidence to believe it uh, at 100% certainty. I think it's one of those things that I would really, really like if Martin got a little loose-lipped at one of these cons. 
and gave us a confirmation on. He doesn't do it often, but every once in a while he'll 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 drop a little a little T bomb in those Q and A's. Just sit him down for a New York Giants game, get some quality beer in front of him, we'll get him talking. You know, we can make this work. <laughs> now on to the one I'm really excited about. Not that I wasn't excited about the last one because I do love Dunk the Lunk. Um, is war stories. This one is fascinating. There's so much to unpack from this scene, just in every little odd line that they make. Uh, we learn so much about the background of these characters, and a lot of it really does... It, again, all of this is created by the show. We have This scene does not exist. We have none of this in the books. But a lot of the backstories they invent either tie into ones that we do know or interestingly develop things that seem perfectly reasonable. One of the first ones that we hear is that we see Robert ask Barrison Selmy who his first kill was. And Barristan walks over, and dutiful servant that he is, uh, answers the question that the first kill he ever had was a Tairoshi, that he ran through with a spear. Now, we don't have much of a frame of reference other than to know that Tyrosh is one of, the, one of the free cities, and that he was presumably on horseback when he did it. That's all the scene says, but we can tie that into some things that we do know about Barristan's background. This was almost certainly an event that occurred during the War of the Nine Penny Kings, a war that happened... This shows how old of a warrior Barristan Selmy is. 40 years before the start of this series. This is a battle and a kill that he's talking about that happened before Robert was born. Uh, of when This is when Barristan Selmy was helping put down, as part of a coalition of essentially all of the best and brightest of Westeros. Tywin was leading this revolt. Um, Stephen, Stark, uh, Stephen Baratheon, uh, Robert's father, was in there. Pretty much all of the who's who for would be that kind of parent generation were front and center as young men fighting off what was really the last of the great uh, Westerosi civil wars, one of the last of the great dynastic battles between what was the um, House Blackfire, the last of their survivors, trying to come back and take command of the throne, ending what is, I think, four or five separate Blackfire rebellions over which of the essentially twin prongs of the Targaryen family should rule Westeros. Barristan Selmy was famous for his bravery and ability in this conflict. As we see here, his first kill, he was like 18, if not, he may have been in his teens when this war was happening, was to drive a lance through the heart of one of the Tyroshi, because the uh, last of the Blackfires, Magor the Monsters, had brought not only various free city groups, he brought the entire freaking gold company with him to Westeros to launch this, to fight this war. It was a massive conflict. Um, famously also, young Barristan Selmy charged in, fighting his way through Magor the Monstrous' guard, and dueled and defeated Magor the Monstrous in single conflict, in single combat. Magor the Monstrous being known as such because he actually had it, the second head of his absorbed sibling growing out of his neck. Fun character. Also, essentially the mountain of his age in terms of how massive and dangerous that he was. Barristan defeated him and earned his knighthood there on the field that day. So him talking about this first kill... This was the foundation of Barristan the Bold's legacy in this particular war and in these particular moments. So it's fascinating to hear him talk about the little bits that still stick with him of how he earned his spurs, earned his knighthood, and began earning the reputation that would grow on from there. Uh, we also hear Barristan Selmy in terms of going through Jamie. You want to talk about the Kingswood Brotherhood under Jamie or under Barristan Selmy here? Because um, I can do both. I could Jamie. It was Jamie, yeah. Well, you, 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 well, well I'll, I'll discuss a little bit of it here, and we'll go back to more of it under Jamie. But he kind of also mentions that he fought against the Kingswood Brotherhood. We'll talk about it all under Jamie. It's a fa it's a fun story about Barristan, too. We go on to Robert, and this is an interesting story that Robert says for a few reasons. 
One, it is a fascinating bit of history about how Roberts' Rebellion started and how Roberts' reputation as one of the supreme and most skilled commanders in all of Westeros began to be founded. It's also fascinating for what gets very clearly wrong, and we can debate and we will debate why that is. Point number one, he talks about how his first kill was at the Battle of Summerhall, when he fought and drove in the breastplate and shattered all the ribs of a young Tarly boy. There's several things about this that don't match with history, either on the show or in our uh, or in the books. One thing, as Lee already pointed out, it's the battles at Summerhall, and Robert would not get that wrong. Uh, Robert famously, Battle of Summerhall was the first battle of Robert's Rebellion, of where he'd been able to sneak away to get, well, one of the first, he'd been able to sneak away to get back to the Stormlands so that he could rally his forces. And unlike, say, the North, the Stormlands were badly divided. Several of the, of the lead Stormlands lords decided to stay loyal to the Targaryen crown, and they all decided to convene at Summerhall so as to put together a significant enough force that they could actually defeat Robert on their own, or at least serve as a lodestone basis by which the Targaryens could bring up their own troops to put down Robert's rebellion finally right there. Robert found out about this through a variety of means, was able to get his army there first, and so was able to defeat the three Stormlands lords and all of their forces in detail before they were able to unite. The fact that he fought and won these three battles against three prepared armies in the same day at the same location is remarkable. It's a story that singers have told about for decades afterwards, or a couple decades afterwards. And so Robert's right, rightfully proud in terms of describing these events. But not only was it three battles, but it was only against Stormland's houses. They were the only ones that were there. I've even got their names written down here. Uh, let's... But for the listeners, Tarly? The Tarleys are not a Stormland house. Yeah, that's what I was going to go into. It was House Caverton, House Fell, and House Grandison, which matters in a minute, in a minute that I'll tell you. The Tarleys are very distinctly a Reach house. This is the Tarley family, Randall Tarley, who we've met and seen both him and his older son burned. And, of course, our favorite member of the Night's Watch, too. The Tarley family are very, one of the most powerful families in the Reach. They would have had no reason to be there yet. They couldn't have been there yet. And so... They were, it's an interesting thing where Robert's either mistaking where his first kill was, or he's kind of combining two battles together. Robert did fight the Tarleys. He famously fought the Tarleys almost immediately afterwards at a battle called the Battle of Ashford. And lost. It's notable that it was the only loss of Robert's career. And one of the things that solidified Randall Tarley's being regarded as one of the finest warriors of Westeros. It also solidified Mace Tarley's braggadocious nature and that he still actually takes credit for this, despite the fact that he never even made it to the field before Randall Tarley and his van won the battle against Robert and forced his retreat. So it's an interesting thing to have Robert get this wrong. Did you, hold on, did you say it's, Mace Tarley? Uh, Mace Tyrell, sorry. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, for me and you, that's obvious, but I think some of the listeners, if they haven't read the book, like, just yeah, sorry, point Mace out. Tyrell. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, of the Tyrell family, he's a bit of a doofus on the show, you know. Um, but he continually brags over the course of the books that he won this great battle. And in reality, it was his bannerman, Randall Tarley, that did it. <laughs> so it's interesting that um, Robert gets this wrong. It's very possible this is just an error on the show's part, in which case they were kind of just flippantly describing the Battle of Summerhall and just confused it with the Battle of Ashford. Or it's a statement that is repeated several times over the course of this first season that Robert's view of the past is through a very rose-tinted lens that leaves out a lot of the details that leaves out a lot of the importance and it's either because he wants to see the past in a better light or in his drunken haze of looking back that he's just kind of forgotten what the actual circumstances were 
it's possible that they intended this as an example, or it's also possible that they just made a mistake. I'm curious of your view on the subject. Uh, we can either address that now, or I can finish up Jamie before we talk about it. Ugh, man, I really don't like to think the show made the mistake. <clears throat> so I'm going to choose to believe that they included Robert making a mistake in his memory, mm-hmm. um, which it did tracks. I mean, he spent like, what, the last 10 years just drinking and doing nothing, really. Yeah. Um, and he looks to be, if not drunk, on his way there during this conversation. I just don't think this is the example I would have used. Yeah. Because Robert talks about the 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 battles at summer hall constantly because he won three battles in a day yeah it was his first time on a on a field i mean it's like one of the more impressive if not the most impressive uh, military campaign uh, or, or series of battles in the history of westeros he brings it up all the time i don't think he would mess it up so i think they were probably trying to just say okay well robert's misremembering things because he's a little drunk and has been for a very long time mm-hmm. um i just don't like the example I, I agree. I think there's a much better example there that they're going to do later that we're not going to talk about now. But there's an example later on in the show that Robert, even to the things that matter most to a human life, has kind of forgotten a lot of the particular details. Um, last example that they go into over the course of this wonderful scene is Jamie, uh, where Jamie describes his first kill as being a member of the Kingswood Brotherhood, uh, which was an outlaw organization that kind of styled themselves as a bit of a Robin Hood group that had put themselves in the Kingswood right outside of King's Landing and had earned kind of the loyalty of the local populace in the sense that they were essentially setting up their own kind of independent rule, that they were protecting them from various lords that were abusing them and asserting their own authority as a result. And so the uh, Kingsguard was sent in there to deal with them. And over the course of a lengthy campaign, diligently through the command of Arthur Dane and Barristan Selmy, earned back the loyalty of the local populace and were able to get information from them by which they could confront the Kingswood Brotherhood directly. Kingswood Brotherhood was an incredibly interesting, motley band of very skilled and dangerous and, at times, directly insane individuals. And we know for a fact Jamie Lannister fought in this campaign as a squire of a different lord, of a, of a different knight or lord. And it, so it comes across as perfectly reasonable that his ki- first kill would have been in this service. What's interesting is what it t- how it ties into events that we do know. Um, we know from the books that Barristan Selmy did fight Simon Toyne. We do know that he did defeat this leader of the Kingswood Brotherhood in single combat and kill him. What's interesting is we also know from the books that that's not the only thing he did on that day. He successfully read he, in his The White Book where he describes his accomplishments. He kind of flippantly describes killing Simon Toyne. One of the main things he focuses on, noble knight that he is, is that he also rescued a lady and her maid in the process. He also very flippantly says at the end of it that he additionally fought and dueled and fought off the Smiling Knight. Which is interesting, and it's again a probably a testament to a certain humility of Barristan Selmy, is that the Smiling Knight was probably one of the most skilled fighters of the entire age. It's a battle that is talked about in incredible knightly ballads of when the Smiling Knight was eventually put down by Arthur Dane. And so the fact that he so flippantly says, yeah, I fought him off, I killed the leader, and I rescued two people, is just so in keeping of Barristan Selmy. Um, what's interesting about the scene is how it may show that they didn't fully intend to introduce Arthur Dane into the show at this point and may have intended to have Barristan Selmy kind of fully take up the role. Great point. Because Arthur Dane is not described at all, which is fascinating because that's all Jamie Lannister cares about. He respects Barristan Selmy, but Arthur Dane, 
is everything in Jamie Lannister's mind. He talks about him in detail. He talks about his accomplishments in detail. He describes Arthur Dane's great duel against the Smiling Knight, how Arthur Dane, with his sword of, with his, with his, uh, the sword of mourning with his, uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of his sword. Impress me, sir. What's the name of Arthur Dane's sword? Oh, I, ugh. Look it up while I'm doing this. Um, Damn it. Success. Ah, I had my moment. I could have done it. You could have. He successfully cuts the Smiling Knight's sword a couple times, but actually pauses to let the guy take up different blades as he's fighting them, and then defeats him in single combat. Notably, and this is one of the main moments that Jamie remembers. Dawn. The, thank you, Dawn. Main moments that Jamie remembers as the proudest moment of his life was not seeing uh, at a different moment, at a different day, Barristan Selmy defeat Simon Toyne. It's himself dueling the Smiling Knight to buy time for Arthur Dane to, to then fight him. That he's possibly on that day or earlier killed Kingswood Brotherhood, but he actually held off the Smiling Knight. And in honor of his accomplishments on that day, on that field, Arthur Dane, at this point the, viewed as the greatest picture of chivalry and the greatest knight in the hist- histories of Westeros, knights Jamie Lannister on the field. The fact that Arthur Dane does not factor into this conversation, is not mentioned or described anywhere in the first season, um, is very interesting. And I think in some ways, in terms of conflating and assigning a lot of the credit for this prior history to Barristan and not mentioning Arthur Dane in this moment, the show didn't fully know or intend to induce Arthur Dane yet. They may have been trying to put Arthur Dane in the same category as Donald Noy, of an important and awesome character, that they're just writing out to narrow their cast and assigning their accomplishment to other people. Um, so it is an incredibly important moment in Jamie's life that's being talked about here. It's also his greatest moment that immediately starts to transition into his darkest moments because immediately as he returns to King's Landing to see Cersei after several years of being separated from her and notably over the course of the series, the more Jamie's apart from Cersei, the better person that he gets, (laughs) he gets into Cersei and then Cersei immediately after wine, dining and bedding him convinces him to join the Kingsguard so that he can get out of the, what she's heard is his potential marriage to Lysa Aaron. And it's this moment that just starts wrecking Jamie's life. Wait a second. Uh, that's confusing to me. That's not my memory of it. How do you, how do you remember it? I thought that Ares uh, appointed Jamie as a, uh, as part of the Kingsguard uh, in a slight to Tywin to rob him of his heir. Yeah, it's, but it's the question of how he got that idea. Um, it's according to Cersei and Jamie's account, and this is a notably a bit in conflict with what we otherwise hear from Tywin, uh, and even from Jamie at different, at different times when he tells the story, but according to Cersei and Jamie's account, she's the one that tells him, this is, this is what we should try to do. And that after they have that moment, then the Mad King proposes it. Cersei was a member of the Mad King's court, one of the ladies-in-waiting of King's Landing at that period. And so it's possible, similar to how we see Sansa go to Cersei and sell out uh, Ned Stark later on, that she may have then gone to the Mad King or one of his ladies and proposed it. And then they seized upon it as, this is perfect. There's some This would screw over Tywin. I'm down for this plan. I think this is one of those great moments that Martin details uh through various pov chapters Mm -hmm. where there's conflicting sort of narratives around why a particular thing happened which is great because it's Um, it's so yeah no i agreed because because i think there's probably more instances in the book 
where especially in the winds of winter uh no sorry the the world of ice and fire that big coffee table book that gives all the the backstory where it's described that hey jamie lannister was appointed to the king's guard because Ares was mad at Tywin, mm-hmm. which which is true, Not, which could be true, absolutely. Um, but it, to your point, it could have been put in his head by somebody. It's one of those things where they they conflict to a certain degree, but it's perfectly possible that they can mesh and both be true. Just two very different character perspectives on the, the reason for an event occurred. Right. But I love the war story scene. It ties into so many great moments in history, and so it's just fascinating to see how much these earliest stories these guys have tie into the characters that they are now today. Yeah, I agree. So this is one where the legislation hit the floor and the Congress went in recess and people started showing up to town halls screaming that it had to pass. Uh, so this one passes Popular with flying claim. colors, bipartisan support. I love the scene. I love you giving the backstory here. I think it's it's great because I think it's it would be very easy to pass over this scene and not think of the details um, about these stories that they're telling. But that's a missed opportunity because the, the, the backstories are really interesting. So... Good job by you. I appreciate it, sir. Uh, any hope of the other one getting on a committee, or are you going to have to wait a few months to find out for sure? Going to have to wait on that one. Going to have to get a new Congress. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm impatient, but I understand. Well, I think I, I did. Go ahead. No, finish up, please. Uh, well, I, I liked it. I mean, I did, but I, it's it's a uh, it's a little speculative. I understand. Well, I think I think we've wrapped up this episode, but I've had a hell of a blast talking about it. I have too. And thanks for doing this over a holiday break. This is the day after Thanksgiving. So uh, we're both doing it from different locations as we visit family. Just a bit of an update on some of the things that we've got going on. Um, you can always go to www.mangumtalks.com, upper, upper right-hand corner, click contact us and give us your feedback. One of the things we'd like to hear is if any of these book nerd bitching topics that Spencer brought up uh, that we don't select, if you'd like us to revisit them, we can. So if I pass up one, uh, that you're interested in, by all means, tell us. We'll bring it up the next time. We'll revisit it. Um, happy to do that. Uh, I think our we may try to do another Got Questions podcast between now and our next taping of Whiskey on the Weekends. But if we don't, the next time you'll hear from us is an episode on December 8th when a friend of ours, Chris, is getting married. We're doing a live taping of Whiskey on the Weekends from my house in lovely Hillsborough, North Carolina. Spence is going to be there. BJ is going to be there. Levi's going to be there. It's going to be a blast. We're going to have a lot of fun. Check us out. On our various podcasts on the Mangum Talks podcast channel, you can do Mangum Reads with BJ and Spencer, Whiskey on the Weekends, as I previously mentioned, Mangum Talks Hoops. And as always, we're happy that you're a listener of the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, anything I missed? Always a pleasure, everybody. Until next time. Enjoyed it. See you.